This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 33. I'm here with uh, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for being here as always. And this is episode 33, which, uh, you know, I'm fairly superstitious. And uh, with two threes in the episode number, I have to tie back to third stage. Um, so it's a, it's an extra special episode, just like episode number three was. And uh, so number 33 is a, a special number for third stage in, in our team. So uh uh, exciting show here today. Um, you can find us, by the way, before I get into the agenda and outline for what we're going to cover today. Uh, be sure to check us out on social media. We uh, have daily posts on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to check us out there. And uh, also check out new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube and all the uh, audio-only uh, podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, uh, Amazon, and whatnot. And today we've got a great episode planned for you. Uh, we have a couple guests on the show here today. Um, the first guest we're going to have on in just a few minutes is Jed Hafer, who's from an organization called Mission Peace. And it's an organization that special specializes in uh, organizational and leadership psychology. And so what we're going to talk about is a, a list of questions I have for him about leadership, emotional intelligence, and organizational psychology, particularly as it relates to change and leading transformation. So if you're into the organizational and human side of change, as I am and Kyler is and others on the third stage team are, you're not going to want to miss that discussion. It's a really interesting uh, way to sort of tie psychology back to uh, transformation. So we'll have Jed on here in just a few minutes. And then later in the show, we're going to have Adam Cheatham, who's a director of strategy and transformation at third stage, someone that Kyler knows very well. Um, I won't give it away how she knows him, but I'll, we'll, we'll have a big reveal at the end in case, in case you don't already know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. They have the same last name, so uh, Adam. Un- unfortunately, you do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. So we'll have Adam on the show. We're actually going to play a clip uh, from a, a recent conference presentation he gave um, that is about how to start your digital transformation, particularly if you're a small and mid-sized organization. So the topics are actually relevant to any size organization, but he he really hones in and unpacks what what's important and what the priority should be if you're a mid-market or smaller organization. So be sure to stick around for that. We'll have Adam on uh, later in the show. But before we get to Jed and Adam uh, here on the show, I know you've uncovered some trends or topics that are of interest to you related to leadership and change management uh, just in, in recent news. So why don't, we, why don't we get started there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be able to kind of tie back into the human people side of digital transformation with some of our current events happening. So one of the articles I found this week talked about um, a book actually for our our book club, right? Um, 
is uh, getting to nimble, how to transform your, your company into a digital leader um, by Peter High. So this actually talks about the importance of CIO's role in digital transformation. So I thought we might start off, Eric, with just kind of getting your um, themes or characteristics of a digital transformation leader. What are some really important things to monitor or, or be aware of if you are leading at the executive level for digital transformation? Sure. That's a that's a very broad question. Uh, I wasn't expecting that uh, coming out of the gates, uh, such a such a meaty question like that. But uh, that's that's a good good place to start. I, <laughs> I just you know like to right, yeah. You don't you don't mess around. So so I think the uh, the main things that you come to mind are sort of two buckets. One is the general leadership characteristics that you expect to see from a from a good leader. So things like uh, good communication, strong vision, uh, collaboration. Um, humbleness, that sort of thing. I think those are all important things, just general leadership characteristics. But when you talk about leading a transformation or a digital transformation in particular, I think there's additional nuances that you have to add to the mix there. Um, there's things like, um, you know, being able to spot and recognize misalignment and an ability to keep your team aligned throughout the entire transformation because that misalignment will ultimately be what undermines or, or challenges your, your transformation if you don't address it. Um, the recognition that change management is so important and the fact that the human side of change is what's really going to make you successful in this overall transformation. And then I'd say, you know, if I'm just summarizing here, hitting the, the highest points or the, the things that first come to mind uh, with that question, I'd say the last thing would be an ability to spot BS, I guess would probably be a way, best way to put it. Someone that can sort of recognize when they're being sold to and recognize when they're, you know, recognize it when there's, there's hype entering the picture and things that may not be uh, appropriate or, or reality. So I think that's another uh, thing to consider is just making sure that you've got a realistic view of what the transformation is going to look like and what the priority should be and not getting too sucked into drinking the Kool-Aid. Of, of the uh, transformation industry. So those are some of the things that come to mind, some of the main characteristics. Yeah, definitely. I love the BS radar. You know, that's important for any executive to have. So when it comes to CIOs specifically, I'm curious, are they the typically the leader of a digital transformation? Um, we know that there needs to be a lot of variety, right, on the ERP core team, but who typically is the executive sponsor on a digital t transformation project or the leader, if you will? Yeah, it's, uh, I guess there's a different answer. There's the reality of what typically happens and then there's sort of in a perfect world what should be. Um, oftentimes, I'd say majority of the time, CIOs are typically, I'd say in a majority of cases, the, the sort of a leader uh, of the transformation, largely because of the, you know, they're coming at it from more of a technology upgrade perspective of recognizing that they're, technology is outdated, they need to up, upgrade their technologies, and therefore the CIO ends up being the one to sort of lead that charge, or the CIO and their their teams. Um, but in a perfect world, you would have someone from the business that's actually leading that. So if you had your CFO or your COO um, lead that initiative, um, even, you know, obviously with the CIO support and the CIO being a core part of the executive steering committee and a core key stakeholder and someone that's going to be very involved, but when you think of the face of the transformation and sort of that executive sponsor that's ultimately accountable for making sure that the transformation is successful, 
I think you need it to be someone on the business side because it's ultimately the business that has to own it. Your CIO probably isn't going to be able to make that transformation successful um, on their own, no matter how talented that he or she might be. So I think having that, um, that business-centric sponsorship is extremely important. Right, right. Um, in this in this expert excerpt, excuse me, from the article, it talks about um, the importance of people, processes, technology, ecosystem, and strategy. So a lot of times, um, this specific recommendation talked about having a variety of executive sponsors on a project. Is that something you've seen as far as a format in working with some of your clients? Yeah, I mean, you you definitely want to have a team. So an executive steering committee that would include your CIO, your CFO, COO, CEO, um, you know, VP of sales, whatever, you know, major um, top positions are, are going to be affected by the transformation. But I think the key is, you know, which you also want to have not just a team, but you also want to have a person that's ultimately accountable to that team. So you might have a steering committee of, say, five or seven people at that executive steering committee level. But within that five or seven people, one person is sort of the the key sponsor that's going to you know drive the project and provide the the more day to day oversight of the of the transformation itself, and sort of that liaison between the the transformation project team and the steering committee. So you do want both. I mean, you want the steering committee and the team, but you also want the individuals. So you can hold one person accountable. Otherwise, you're we've seen a lot of situations where you're pointing fingers at everyone or everyone's pointing fingers at each other saying, Hey, that's not my thing. That's his thing or that's her thing or whatever the case may be. Right. Right. And I know Jed will kind of talk about that team-based mentality in that conversation of, you know, how to interact and create relationships with those important stakeholders in, involved in the project. Um, which leads me to another interesting study I found for the Harvard business review that talked about the difference between organizational change management, surviving versus thriving. So I thought I may kind of quiz you again, not that I haven't, you know, put the pressure on my first broad question, but um, if you were to say an organization is in that thriving category when it comes to change management, what would be some of the aspects that you would constitute as as thriving from a change management perspective? Like what would be the, the key benchmarks to overall success? As it compares to simply surviving, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. So, so if you're if you're in the thriving category as opposed to the just surviving category, um, and we can kind of unpack that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I'd say surviving. You know, if we start there as sort of the base, um, it's not even a, a minimum because you're actually falling short if you if you're focusing on the survival part of it. But surviving would be things like um, I'm putting together some end user training for how to use the new system. I'm doing some email blasts along the way, project updates to the to the entire organization, and you know that's that's about it. I mean, to me, that's the surviving mode where you're 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 really just scratching the surface of of training people on the new technology or whatever, or whatever the transformation entails. Thriving, on the other hand, really gets at how do I optimize organizational performance using this transformation as a as an enabler. So yes, I'm going to train people on new technologies. Probably, I'm probably going to communicate and do some all employee email blasts and whatnot, but there's a lot more to it. You know, I need to identify the vision for what the future state of the organization is going to look like, how roles and responsibilities are going to change, how individuals and work groups and departments and locations are going to be affected by the transformation. 
and ultimately defining what the expected business benefits are and how we're going to achieve those business benefits as part of this transformation. So, you know, you look at the that population of stuff and there's a lot there. I mean, there's a lot to do and there's a lot that should happen well before you get to that end user training, which is sort of that surviving mentality that most project teams and organizations have. So you really have to think outside the box and really look at the bigger picture. And, and it, this all assumes, by the way, this all assumes that the organization and the project team has an interest in optimizing business value and not just replacing technology. And so if, if the answer is yes, you do want to optimize performance and make the business better than it was before, then you should be thinking well outside the box of surviving and move into that thriving bucket. Right. This specific um, study, um, it uh, splits up the thriving phase into three worlds, which is lean on opportunities, not just threats, delegate control and celebrate progress. And I thought the lean on opportunities, not just threats was a really great tie back to your conversation with Jed, because it talks about the importance of evaluating from a leadership perspective, the opportunity in um, in change management or in this new technology, not just, oh my goodness, this is a crisis and it's fear-based and we have to change, which leads to a lot of resistance and uncertainty within the people side of the organization. Um, so I thought that was something that was really interesting. Do you see that often clients coming to you and being like, we must change this, it's all broken. And how do you kind of settle them back into shifting that perspective to more opportunity-based as opposed to fear-based from a project standpoint? Yeah, that's a that's an awesome question because that is such a real dynamic and a, and a real problem we see where, and especially today, even more so than three, five, 10, 20 years ago, with the migration of software and technologies in general, with that migration to the cloud comes vendor end of life sorts of issues. So vendors are now saying that their old legacy products are going to be phased out at some point in the not too distant future. And therefore, if you want to remain a customer of that vendor, you're going to have to upgrade to this new cloud system. And so you've got that dynamic on one hand. The other hand, you have uh, the other dynamic of organizations that have just been sitting on the same technology for the last 20 years or whatever. It's been a lot of, a lot of organizations, for example, still haven't upgraded their technologies in any meaningful way since Y2K. So now we're coming up on, you know, 20 plus years since Y2K and you've got a lot of organizations that are, you know, 20 years behind basically. So combine those two things and now you've got a lot of fear-based decision-making like, uh, like, oh shoot, we suddenly now need to make a change right this minute and let's just go ahead and upgrade our technology. And so that, you know, kind of going back to your first question about who should lead the project, that's, that's why CIOs oftentimes are the ones to make that first call to us or to, you know, software vendors looking for, for help. And so, um, so I think that's the, the key is really just, you know, thinking outside, recognizing that you're acting very reactively when, you, when you're in that position. And that's the reality that a lot of organizations are in. They have to replace their systems and there's a certain amount of urgency that goes along with that. But you have to back up and look at the big picture and really look beyond just replacing technology and doing a 20-year upgrade. It's more, how are we going to make our business better? What do we want to be when we grow up? What's the overall strategy and plan? And, and don't you just don't want to lose that ability to think critically and to to see the forest for the trees. Absolutely. And I, I think that brings me to kind of the most interesting article, at least I found um, in my research this week, which is um, talking about the hybrid work um, and embracing um, security when it comes to at-home work. I think that ties back to 
not only the current events of the Delta variant and what that looks like for businesses trying to decide to come back to work or not come back to work, and then also, you know, tying into um, the the thriving versus surviving fear-based kind of strategies when my my employees will be working at home and instead of using that technology as more of re- reactionary, optimizing it to make sure that you, you can operate in, in that kind of um, view. So this this article was called um, a three-step roadmap to securing your company's digital transformation when we're talking about hybrid work. Um, so it was talking about cloud security, and we've talked about this obviously a lot on um, different episodes. And I found this really interesting um, statistics from um, Gardner that says 99% of cloud security mishaps will be the customer's fault rather than the cloud vendor's fault. Um, so it's important to incorporate solutions such as cloud security um, management and what that looks like. And I, I wondered if you could kind of um, explain that to me. Like, why would that security feature within the remote workforce, um, the cloud security, why would it be the customer's fault as opposed to the actual business's fault? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it, first of all, has to do with, you know, are, are you using that that cybersecurity tool set the way you could be or should be? Um, that's part of it. But I think the bigger risk for cybersecurity that, that would fall on the organizations themselves, not their software or technology providers, is the all the processes and workflows that touch or are affected by, by, by security. So... For example, if you're putting in a new uh, enterprise-wide technology like an ERP or human capital or, or CRM system, you need to do so in a way that has certain controls and security profiles and things that sort of mitigate risk of the ability to, for example, to, to create a vendor and pay a vendor on the same day. You know, if, I'm, if one person can create a vendor, uh, they can process a, an invoice and go ahead and pay a vendor. Um, that means that in theory, I could create Eric Kimberling as a vendor, and I'm going to go ahead and pay Eric Kimberling, you know, five hundred thousand um, dollars. Now, obviously, that's going to get flagged by internal audit, and that's probably not going to work work out very well. But we see a lot of organizations, or a fair number of organizations, that have more smaller scale uh, fraud, if you will, and that's not a that's not a technology issue per se, although it kind of is, in that this the systems may not have been set up in a way that that segregates duties and um, segregates people's jobs to where they can't engage in, in any sort of uh, processes or activity that would endanger or, or create security issues. So I think that's probably where they're coming from. And that's, I would agree with that statement that so much of security issue is, is related to, to people. And, and you look at like phishing scams and, um, you know, pe- uh, people clicking on clickbait or, or links that are taking you to a you know, to a, to a, a website that's meant to, you know, somehow hack your, your, uh, systems or whatever. So that's the, the kind of thing you have to worry about. It's a, a lot of it, just as much of it is behavioral as it is technical. And, uh, there's also that workflow and business process and the way you deploy the tools that is all in the realm of what the organization should be doing, not the technology provider necessarily. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for kind of walking us through that. Um, as it's definitely something that that is 
on the minds of a lot of companies. Specifically, I know today we're going to talk about some small business tactics, small to mid-sized businesses when going through a digital transformation. So I, I wondered if you might kind of give us um, the first step of what a company kind of in that situation or the, the, the first step of leadership, I should say, in a small to mid-sized business what should kind of their first thoughts be when they're when they're looking at transforming a new technology? Well, I'd, I'd say first of all, forget about the technology and focus more on your business and what you are trying to accomplish and what your vision for the organization is, and then sort of work your way to the technology from there. Uh, if we go in with a shiny new technology object and use that as the leading factor that's going to lead us down a path that's going to distract us. It's going to cost more money than we need to be spending. And it's probably not going to deliver the value that's aligned with our business goals and objectives. So if we start off with our vision and strategy and sort of how we cast our minds forward to what we think the organization is going to look like in five to 10 years and what the operations might look like in five to 10 years, then we can start to craft a technology roadmap and solution that best fits that rather than leading with the technology. So that's, that would be my biggest advice is just to sort of flip that, forget about di digital, forget about technology and focus more on the business first. And then once you've got that stuff figured out if, as far as what you want that future state to be, then you figure out how the technology might fit into that picture. Right, right, definitely. Um, and then this specific study when um, I was looking at it is, is titled Where Small to Mid-Sized Businesses Go Wrong in Their Transformation. Um, and one of the pieces in here talks about um, reaching out for a, a data specialist um, and really looking at that from the processes standpoint of needing that additional insight. Is that something that you've seen with small to mid-sized businesses is just kind of a, a lacking idea of how to kind of clean up the operational data? Yeah, that is a big part of it, largely because so many small and mid-sized companies don't have that internal competency. They just, it hasn't been required to get them to where they are today, but to get them to where they want to go in the future, that may be a requirement. So that, that is pretty common to see that and other technology gaps or deficiencies internally that you don't have today, but you might need in the future to help you get there. And would you say that's something that kind of sets apart um, those larger, larger organizations versus the small to mid-size is just those internal abilities, um, to um, to complete specific aspects of a digital transformation? And is is that why kind of third stage has a specialized small to mid-sized mid business team that helps with that? Am I oversimplifying if I just say yes to all of the above? <laughs> I'd say yes, that, 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 is yes. What, that is something that's different with, with bigger organizations as they tend to have more maturity and more competency built up in-house, whereas small and mid-sized companies aren't as likely to. And uh, that is something that we, you know, focus on or hone in on when we're dealing with the mid-market is helping them not necessarily become a, a big, sophisticated IT shop overnight, but, you know, you certainly help them build those competencies as they need them over time. Definitely. And then the people side of things can be much different in that small to mid-sized tier culture. A lot of the businesses that I know we work with at Third Stage are multi-generational. They're family-owned. And a lot of times that can look more like a lifestyle. And those relationships that we talk about with Jed are, you know, much more emotionally based than you would have with other coworkers. So 
Um, do you have a different kind of change management or people strategy when it comes to small to mid-sized businesses? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you want to resist the temptation to think that, well, because I'm a smaller mid-sized company, change management is not going to be difficult for me. That's more of a big company problem because that's not true. I mean, on one hand, yes, bigger companies have more people, more complexities, more things that are difficult to change because they've been baked in and, and set over time. But a small and mid-sized company, on the other hand, has their own challenges in a different way. They, they struggle with you know, maintaining or preserving the culture that got them to where they are, but then transforming or changing or tweaking their culture to help them get to where they need to go. And so a lot of, you know, mid-market companies are still have sort of a gunslinging entrepreneurial mentality, which has worked really well for them, but then they start to struggle with efficiencies and um, visibility into the operations as they grow because they're got that gunslinging mentality and they, they aren't able to sort of act like a bigger company in terms of, uh, you know, standardization or common business processes or whatever. So it's a different kind of change management issue, um, still just as important, Um as it is for a big company, it's just the, the focus is a bit different. Gotcha. Well, I know that Jed's going to take us through a lot um, of a deeper dive into the social emotional and kind of the organizational psychology when it comes to leadership within a digital transformation. Um, and I'm definitely excited for his conversation with you and to unpack that um, later on in the episode. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to have him on the show as well. Um, it's a bit different, you know. He's he's going to be a different guest than what we've had in the past. In that he's not a he's not a digital transformation guy. He's definitely not an IT or CIO type, which has been a lot of who we've had on on the show in the past. Um, and he'll probably be a little closer, Mike, to my comfort zone than, than some of the the other more technical guests we've had in the past. Um, and he's he's he considers himself an emotional intelligence expert, um, founded or or based on the whole love and logic uh, concept, which. Uh, if you're a parent, uh, love and logic is is something that I have found invaluable as being a uh, relatively new parent and walking into a stepdad sort of situation where I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, love and logic was very helpful in that way. And that's actually what led me to Jed is that connection I had between love and logic as a parent and then applying some of those same concepts of love and logic to uh, organizations as well and leaders and project teams and things of that nature. So uh, for those of you listening that don't know what love and logic is, don't know what emotional intelligence means or any of that stuff, that's what Jed's going to be on to help us unpack and explain a little bit more. And he can explain a lot better than I can. Um, so we're going to have Jed Hafer on the show here in a second. Be sure to stick around. This is this is going to be a really good conversation uh, because we're going to talk about you know organizational dynamics, uh, leadership, the psychology of organizations and teams, particularly as it relates to leading transformation and change within organizations and some of the conflict and tension and dynamics that happen as a result, those oftentimes are the things that derail these, these transformations. So that's why you want to stick around. Uh, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break, though, and then we're going to have Jed on the show as soon as we get back. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham and excited to have our next guest on the show. We're going to have uh, Jed Hafer from Mission Peace, who's here to talk about organizational dynamics, emotional intelligence, leadership, the psychology of organizations and teams, particularly as it relates to transformations and change within organizations. So with all that being said, Jed, thanks for being on the show today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure. Uh, you and I have known each other a long time, and it strikes me that you have taken much better care of yourself over the years than I have. Uh, so people watching the video will be able to to notice right away. Uh, but it's it's a great pleasure to join you. I'm excited uh, to be talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to build on that, you and I go, we went to the same high school. So we, we were in different classes, different grades, but we grew up in a tiny little town in southern, in the mountains of southern Colorado called Woodland Park, Colorado. So uh, that's how we first crossed paths and it's a small world. We're crossing paths here again, 25 years later. Yeah. And I always wondered what happened to all the smart kids. And so now I know catching up with you, that, that gives me some insight on, on where some of the smart kids went. <laughs> right. Yeah. And same goes for you too. Now I know, now I know where you in particular went as a smart kid and, uh, excited to, to chat with you about it. Um, so I guess to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and about Mission Peace. Maybe just give us a little bit, bit of background of sort of who you are, how'd you grow up in this in this space? What is it? You know, all that good stuff. Sure. So I founded a, a company called Mission Peace about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Uh, our website is mission-peace.org. Uh, think of the dash as a bridge. And I really founded it because I saw lots of my friends and family members fighting with one another. And uh, for years before that, I worked for the Love and Logic Institute. And I really feel like I've become an emotional intelligence expert, kind of by accident, but also because I've just always been fascinated with what what makes people tick, what makes them uh, do what they do. And I tried really hard to foster peace between people that I cared about who were who were going at each other. And if you've spent any time on social media, you've probably seen this. Part of the mission of Mission Peace was to foster better relationships and more peace between especially people in authority. So law enforcement and uh, going way back, my, my, my main audience was teachers, uh, especially teachers that worked with really tougher students, tougher kids. And so that's how I kind of landed in this space. And I absolutely love helping people get better with other people. Right. Such a, a basic but fundamental and important overlooked uh, aspect of, of emotional intelligence and, and just organizational dynamics in general. I always say, if you're good with people, we'll make you better. Right. Right. That's a good, that's a good slogan in, in an area, not enough, uh, not enough people focus on. So when we think about, um, so just sort of diving into what, what you do and what Mission Peace does, 
Um, I know one of the things you just mentioned and you and I have talked about before is this whole concept of emotional intelligence. Um, maybe you know, help us understand what, what is emotional intelligence? How does it apply to us as humans, to organizations? What is it? Yeah, I, I measure it a little differently than other emotional intelligence experts. Uh, people will even use, if you think about IQ, that they'll use EQ as a as a measurement of your emotional intelligence. And, and to me, it's not just what you know. I, I try to take it one notch more practical and really tune into how effective you are basically intentionally affecting other people in, in the way that you want to. Uh, we have six principles at Mission Peace and our first is respectful engagement. Uh, we're, we're very, we try to be very proactive. And so you're deciding to be respectful even before the interaction starts. You're, you're sort of making a commitment that we're gonna engage respectfully before it even starts. And our, our kind of tagline throughout these live trainings, I mostly do live training and in-person consulting. I'm, I'm big on that stuff. Our tagline throughout is that intentionality wins the day. Uh, intentionality will pull us into greatness in whatever the area is. But I go back to the old, uh, if people remember the old Jerry Springer shows, uh, they'd usually bring people on stage intentionally to get them screaming at each other for the entertainment of the audience. And you'd see one person get louder and then the other person would get louder and they would interrupt each other at quicker and quicker intervals. I, I teach de-escalation and emotional intelligence. What we found is that the, the person being intentional can actually bring the other person down. Intentionality tends to win the day. And so if I've set out ahead of time with this goal and I'm, I'm more proactive as the other person is being more reactive, I can usually have the, the desired outcome or at least I can control my part of the equation and stay classy and uh, stay employed. <laughs> that was one of the big deals with teachers is let's not do anything that's gonna jeopardize our, our career. Uh, so that's, to me, emotional intelligence is, is first and foremost about intentionality. And then we start with ourselves. We start with the self-awareness and then move into other awareness and empathy and the factors that, that make us good at this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, you talk about Jerry Springer back in the 90s or whenever that was that he was he was around. But it seems like in today's day and age, in today's culture, throughout the world, not just even in the United States. It's, it seems especially prevalent in the United States just because that's where you and I are. But even in other parts of the world, it just seems like uh, people's opinions and uh, views of each other have just sort of diverged and become more extreme. And you have a lot more Jerry Springer moments, it feels like, every day. You know, people you deal with personally on a personal level or even organizationally within organizations as well. Yeah, that's my mission. Uh, fewer, fewer Jerry Springer moments, uh, fewer bad YouTube videos involving people in authority and either either having uh, lose their temper and, and, and misuse their power or their authority. And that goes back to love and logic. You know, that's that's my first mission as a parent is not to ever misuse or abuse the power that I have when I'm trying to, to raise kids. So that's where this really started for me. And and as you know, those principles apply just across human interaction. Right, right. Yeah, and in fact, um, when I had first reached out to you about uh, potentially being a, a guest on on my show here, 
the reason was is because of your love and logic background. And I, you know, I knew of you obviously from high school and I'd been following you over the years and I knew you were a love and logic type person even before you started uh, Mission Peace. And, uh, you know, when I had uh, just a quick backstory that I think will kind of relate this back to the whole concept of organizational transformation, digital transformation, business transformation, all that stuff. But I've always been an organizational change consultant um, since I started my career in the you know late 90s out of grad school. And uh, about 10 years ago, I met my wife who had two young children and we got married. And so I had suddenly I had stepkids and I had never been a parent before. And so she and I both read Love and Logic because I needed to figure out what in the heck I was doing because I had no idea what I was doing. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll read a book. I'll read Love and Logic. And um, she had heard of it and we uh, both read it together. But not only has that helped me with parenting, but it's actually helped me tremendously in the corporate world, being a consultant, because so many of the principles in Love and Logic you can use on just other individuals, uh, executives and managers, frontline people, which we can get into maybe a little bit more uh, as we talk here. But I think the love and logic principles, it, 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 if I'm correct, it didn't start. It, it was intended for a parenting sort of uh, philosophy, right? Like how to, how to parent and raise better kids. Yes, uh, way back in the 1970s, uh, Jim Jim Fay started it, and and that was exactly the idea: is is give parents tools to empower their kids to become better decision makers. So no surprise that these same principles are great tools in the hands of a consultant be more of a consultant uh, than a helicopter who's rescuing or a drill sergeant who's always barking orders. Uh, I worked closely with them for about about a dozen years and got to travel around speak with, with Jim Fay and uh, Dr. Charles Fay, his son, who, uh, who now runs the company. They did downsize quite a bit over COVID, uh, sadly, because a lot of live presentations and a lot of business in schools and schools quickly had to pivot to, uh, to other priorities during COVID, but still a wonderful uh, organization, wonderful information. And I'm always uh, pleased that I get to continue to share their message, which is essentially, it's based on really good principles just with human beings. Uh, things like preserving the dignity of another human being, shared thinking, shared control, and uh, empathy. I mean, that's basically what Love and Logic is all about. It's not just a way to get your kid to, to eat their vegetables. These are really sound uh, principles within human psychology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's uh, you talk about how it helps people, kids. I mean, it was designed for kids, but it, it also applies to people in general. It helped them make better decisions. And you know, you, I think you were sort of implying this a moment ago, but uh, you know, corporations and organizations in general are notorious for making some really bad decisions. You know, as as individuals and as groups, and that's the thing that really struck me is that love and logic is a great framework to sort of create a certain amount of accountability and also an understanding of consequences for organizations. You know, every organization and leader we deal with, they have some sort of vision, easy answer, you know, an easy answer with no consequences and no downside risk. And it's totally unrealistic. So what we do is try to frame it differently and say, well, no matter what decision you make, there's a risk. There's going to be something you don't like about it. So let's pick one. And here's the pros and cons of each. And here's what we think. But you decide whatever you want. You're the you're the client. I mean, that's I'm oversimplifying, but that's the 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 way it's affected me as a consultant. But what, tell me what you know. What have you seen, or how have you seen it used in? Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about parenting, but focusing more on organizationally, how have you seen some of those principles used successfully in organizations you've consulted with or to? 
yes, if I'm a boss, I want to raise, you know, just like a parent, I don't just want to raise an obedient kid. I want to raise a good decision maker, right? So if I'm a boss, I want to have, uh, I want to have a team of good decision makers, not just necessarily people who, who do what they're told without thinking critically or without understanding the why. Uh, I was a why kid growing up. I remember asking my parents the rationale, the why behind just about everything. And they usually had a good answer. And I was never a fan of because I said so. And so the same thing for a boss. Uh, if your answer is just because I'm the boss versus I have a really good reason behind this, there's good thinking and planning behind this decision. And I want that to spread all the way down to, you know, the, the lowest person on my org chart. I want good thinkers and decision makers and responsible people. So, yeah, the parallels are are amazing because the very things I want out of uh, kids I might be raising using these love and logic principles. That's exactly what I want on my team. I, I want good thinkers, good decision makers and people who take responsibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in, uh, especially in complex decisions, you know, that aren't that aren't easy. You know, you, you want them to think through the critically think through all all the nuances of those decisions. I guess I want them to eat their vegetables too, just for their own, for their own good and stuff. Yeah. I mean, if that's an unintended um, secondary benefit, that's not a, that's not a terrible thing either. Yeah. It probably helps our, our bottom line and our, our you know, company health plan or whatever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Jed Hafer. We're talking about organizational dynamics, leadership, all kinds of stuff related to transformation. Let's get right back to the interview. You, you talked about emotional intelligence uh, a moment ago or a few minutes ago. What, um, when it comes to emotional intelligence, what are, what are some of the biggest challenges that leaders within organizations typically face when it comes to emotional intelligence? I think it's the balance. Uh, it's very difficult to balance the traits of a good leader because they can be seemingly conflicting. Uh, again, same as uh, in, in, in parenting, but really you're, you're just a leader. You know, I want to be, be kind, but I want to be strong, predicting one another. Uh, a leader has to balance things like rapport and respect, and one shouldn't be sacrificed for the other. Things like confidence versus the, because I'm the leader, because I said so. 
that tends to, I think that's probably the biggest one that gets leaders in trouble is we all have an ego and we, if, if we're not careful, we can surround ourselves only with people that, that feed that ego and tell us we're right versus the idea of I'm going to have this quick mindset as a leader and I'm, I'm going to embrace feedback. Uh, we always say feedback is our friend. Uh, good feedback, especially coming from a caring source that's aligned with my goals, that's our, that's our best friend. But some leaders, you've probably seen this, they, they get kind of me syndrome and they get to a place where their voice is the only voice that matters. And unfortunately, we miss out as leaders on a lot of really good perspective and a lot of good feedback if people don't feel free to share differing ideas. And this goes back to Mission Peace too. Uh, there are people that just kind of bullying each other on the internet. You're not allowed to disagree with me. You're not allowed to have a different opinion. It's not just that you have a different opinion. If you disagree, it's because you're a bad person. And I'd actually like to see us all get a little bit more uh, thick skinned in the sense of it's okay if we disagree. It's actually necessary. Uh, you know, differing views on an, on an issue. It's really important to get to the best information we have to have these different perspectives. In my very first podcast, I have a podcast too, it's called Cooler Heads. And the whole premise is helping people get along better. But I mentioned the Wright brothers. Uh, the Wright brothers you know, figured out how to get us up in the air. They disagreed a lot. They didn't wake up every day on the same page as far as how to, how to fly. And they would really spar and go at each other, but they kept the relationship positive. They obviously cared about each other and they cared about their goal. So uh, we shouldn't be afraid of disagreement, especially as a leader. I think that insecure, no one's allowed to contradict me. Uh, that's that's probably the most paralyzing weakness in terms of emotional intelligence that I see in, in some leaders, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good reminder, especially, you know, a larger, more complex organization with more diverse people. You're just going to get inherently different opinions and different philosophies, which uh, shouldn't be considered a bad thing. I mean, that's what makes strong teams is, is that that diversity. In yeah. Let's not fear that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and, and even just tying it, you know, you're talking about the, uh, you know, not being afraid to look at counterpoints and understand different points of view, relating it to our industry and what we do. One thing that we notice in our uh, industry of digital transformation is that you have software companies and software vendors and consultants that all sort of think the same and they have these same flawed implementation approaches that have really caused a lot of failures in the industry and a lot of it's because it's sort of like a group think not thinking outside the box sort of a mentality where we're not going to go in and implement new technology but we're not thinking about the human side of change we're not thinking about process improvements and some of the non-technology aspects they're just, you know we're just so myopically focused on technology and we're not necessarily always open to those ideas of, hey, maybe there's a reason all these failures are happening. Maybe it's because we're doing something wrong. We should be open to other ideas and alternates to what we've been fed for the last several decades in, from the technology industry. So I think that's uh, what you just said resonates it, maybe in a slight, you know, slightly different way than what you intended, but it resonates really well uh, in our industry and in my experience as well. One of the first uh, kind of tech side companies that I got to consult with were some video game guys. And they obviously, whenever they create a new game, they try to break it. They try to find the, the flaws and the bugs. And so this idea, once they got it, 
it resonated with them. Oh, okay. If we have an idea, we need to try to break it just like we would a new game. We need to find the flaws. We need to almost, I think when you're at your height as a leader, you can already anticipate the yeah, buts and the counterpoints and the why this won't work and some of the uh, resistance that you might get when you're trying to implement something. And we, again, we shouldn't approach that from a place of fear. We should, we should embrace it and say, let's, let's get all this on the table and may the best ideas win. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in uh, today's ever changing world, you know, it's changing faster and faster and you need, um, you know, you need that diversity of thinking to make sure you're addressing your own blind spots as a leader or as a, as a peer team member. I've learned that from watching you a little bit that uh, something comes along or something changes and, you know, should we just jump on this bandwagon because everyone's doing it or is it really better? Uh, I, I think that's, that's an important thing that you always raise is let's not just do it because let's really figure out what's going to work best. Yeah. So I agree with that. And, and why, why do you think it is that, um, leaders so commonly struggle with or uh, with emotional intelligence or, or organizations in general, organizations and their leaders. Why why is emotional intelligence such a, a problem or a deficiency for, for a lot of people in organizations? I was thinking about that. It seems like people end up in leadership positions for different reasons, but one big reason is usually they're a strong personality and I've watched people with strong personalities, the, the, the farther they go, it seems like sometimes the less resistance they get because people realize, oh, strong personality resistance is futile. So we'll just go along. And the more time, the more experience you have of not having anybody, you know, question or challenge an idea, it becomes your expectation. It becomes everybody's expectation around you. And pretty soon uh, you, you can be a tyrant if you're not careful. So I think humility, again, the self-awareness and the humility and the and the actually not fragile ego, these are all good traits of, of a good leader. Whereas we've seen uh, we've seen instances where a leader who just is so afraid of anybody questioning them or so afraid of being wrong or looking stupid, which to me that really comes from a lack of humility. Uh, that's where leaders tend to get in trouble. So yeah, if we really wanted to simplify it uh, back to love and logic terms, maybe some of our leaders didn't struggle enough or get challenged enough or have enough uh, times where they were wrong or made mistakes or had to own those. And so they're just not good at it because they don't have enough practice. So a great thing for a leader is to have another strong personality who is not afraid uh, to say, well, here's at least another way of looking at that. And obviously it has to be a healthy intentional communication where it doesn't become toxic uh, disagreement or, or disagreement just for the sake of, which is another thing that is a lot, uh, it, it's plentiful on the internet. <laughs> I'll just be the naysayer just because. But I think for the, for the leader, yeah, the, the self-awareness to say, I don't want to become um, uh, this, this voice that nobody can oppose because once in a while, at least I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. And good point. Um, we, we actually have a, a question that I wanted to get to a question from the audience. Um, this is from, uh, Ahmed on, um, YouTube. 
And by the way, I've, if you're on LinkedIn um, on the live stream, I'm having trouble getting into the live stream. So I'm not even sure if it's, if, if the live, the stream is working on LinkedIn, but I know it is on YouTube. And, and Ahmed is, uh, has a question here, which I think is a great one, which is, uh, first of all, good session. Thank you. I appreciate if you can shed, uh, shed some light on micromanagement and its effect on corporate organizations. What are your thoughts on that? I really believe the micromanager, it comes from a place of fear. I think a lot of times my propensity to micromanage is because I'm afraid and I can't just trust that things are going to be okay or that our plan is good or that my people are capable. So usually a micromanager is a, is a leader who's coming from a place of fear. And if I work with a company, that's, that's one of the things I'm going to try to do is, is break down and say, what are we really afraid of? Uh, what are, and, and sometimes it's okay to go to the worst case scenario. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen here? Uh, and a lot of times what we're afraid of isn't nearly as bad as, you know, the fear itself or, or what we're worried is going to happen. But yeah, my short answer is I think my micromanagement tends to come from fear and I think the antidote to that, this may sound a little crazy, but I think the antidote to fear a lot of times is relationship. When I really trust you, and if you think about this in a marriage or with a best friend, when I really know you and I really trust you, that relationship tends to kind of erode the fear. A lot of times when we're afraid, it's more the unknown uh, the unfamiliar, the thing we don't know uh, what to expect. So the longer we can go, and if we build this positive relationship, I th think that helps alleviate some of that fear. Now, if I have a leader who's just their base personality is is to overly uh, worry, you know, that means this, there's some self-awareness work that that leader needs to do. So if it's, if it's me doing it, the antidote, awareness if it's coming from somewhere else let's really i would with a company i'd really build i'd actually work on building um a, a stronger and more positive relationship between the the parties involved because then when i trust you i don't i don't have to micromanage you i know it's you eric you're going to do a great job i don't need to micromanage you because we have a relationship and i know yeah that's that's super interesting i, I guess it's almost like um you know in the absent the relationship it seems like the relationship creates um knowledge in some ways it's a comfort it's knowledge it's a understanding and in the absence of that knowledge and understanding and comfort i guess i'm in in some cases i might assume the worst depending on what my personality is or you know my general level of trust i might assume the worst and therefore i'm gonna micromanage because i'm assuming the worst i don't have the information i don't have the trust i don't have the confidence is that sort of, is that sort of what you're saying it, it, it kind of feeds into it that's it oh i'm sort of sad that you said it better than i did but yeah that's it exactly <laughs> Uh, if I think about a dark a dark street, if, if I see a stranger on the dark street, I'm, <laughs> I might be a little more inherently afraid of a stranger. But if I see the person, oh, that's my friend, you know, the fear is going to go away. I know this person. I, I think that happens a lot in business when when we have a relationship, it helps us just be less afraid. Um, almost by definition, there's going to be some trust in that relationship that that hopefully makes me less worried that I need to micromanage this other person. Right. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. Um, so if I have a boss, if I have a boss who's a micromanager, 
I'm actually saying become better, become closer or better friends with that boss who's the micromanager, which is probably counterintuitive. That's great advice. You know, I've never thought of that. You know, I've had micromanager bosses, you know, back in the day before I, before I was the boss, but um, I never thought that never even occurred to me that that, that could be a good anecdote, anecdote to that. So it's great advice. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Jed Hafer. We're talking about organizational dynamics, leadership, all kinds of stuff related to transformation. Let's get right back to the interview. What about um, emotional intelligence, or not emotional intelligence, um, we already talked about that, <laughs> organizational culture. Um, when you, you think about organizational culture, which I know culture in general is an area that, that uh, you're keen on and, and you know well, but how would you describe it? Um, how does it affect how can it affect or positively affect an organization and uh, how can it affect positive change so maybe just start with culture in general why is it important how does it affect an organization yeah i'm kind of a sports guy and so i think about about sports teams and we can be kind of the sum of the ability of of the different people on a team and so I want to hire, if I'm hiring, I want to hire as many emotionally intelligent people as possible. Uh, we can train some things into people, but if, if someone's kind of base personality is, is very selfish and, uh, you know, not, not caring very much about other people, that's, that's a tough thing to overcome. I'd actually rather have a kind of a giver personality who knows less because I can train them in you know, whatever the logistics might be. But that person who's really, really just inherently selfish, that's a hard thing to overcome. Uh, when it comes to the culture, what I look for is, I'll go back to this growth mindset. Uh, it's probably a book that you've recommended, uh, the, the book Mindset, Carol Dweck, we're big fans. Mm. I want people on the team that have this growth mindset. I think one of the more toxic things to an organizational culture is the people who are stuck in the old way and that's just the way it is. And I think they almost become comfortable uh, complaining. I see this in professions, again, of working with a lot of teachers and many of them wonderful. There's a certain segment of teachers that are kind of happy martyrs in a, in a sense that our job is so tough and our job is so bad. I see this now 
uh, as a thing to, to battle against in the culture of a, a law enforcement agency. We have this really tough job and nobody understands how, how hard it is. And I want to have empathy for that position. Yes, it really is hard and still a growth mindset. Let's not sit here helpless and say this is so tough and there's nothing we can do about it. I worked with teenagers in trouble for a long time before I worked for Love and Logic. And there was a certain segment of our staff that would want to go to the bar afterwards and talk about how bad the kids were. And those were not my people. Uh, my people were the ones who wanted to share the amazing success stories because I feel like, like hope and optimism, especially working with people who have been through a lot of tough stuff, those are, are almost magic bullets versus that sort of pessimistic, woe is us, uh, it's never gonna get any better. That to me is, is really the, the anchor bringing down a lot of organizational cultures. So yeah, give me the optimistic person, give me the growth-minded person. And um, I mean, once in a while, there are people who are just not a good fit for my organization. And I think I think the selfish pessimist is the person I really would like to cut from the team uh, before the regular season starts. Right. Now that's a great uh, great point, and in, in a couple of great points there. One is the hope and optimism, and how that's gonna that's gonna win in the end, and that's that that can be very powerful. I think uh, if we let it, I guess is sort of the caveat. If you, if you let hope and optimism be there. It, it's going to win. The problem is a lot of times we don't let it in. We focus on the negative. We, we kind of drag ourselves down and, you know, there's nothing else there to buoy us back up. So I've, uh, since you're a sports guy, um, I have to ask yeah, you the question. We get, we get trained to only look for problems. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Just, I was just saying, yeah, negative. sometimes we are, our, our brains get trained to look for problems and then uh, we, we get so used to looking for problems that that's what we see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a, uh, you know, I think this might be the third, the third week in a row, this topic has come up now and now it's perfect for you, given that you just brought up the sports analogy, but you, have you seen the show uh, Ted Lasso on Apple plus? Yes. So there, so I, I find that show fascinating for this, the reasons you just said, because it's a sports team and he's trying to create a chemistry. He's trying to create a culture and he's got some, you know, one in particular star player who, um, is very talented probably they're i think it's his best player it's a young superstar on the team big name and uh but he's not a good cultural fit and so that creates a lot of drama and subplots and things he has to deal with trying to figure out how to create chemistry at the same time as trying to create talent and, and and trying to win so i guess just you know kind of coming back to that you know bringing it full circle you know how does how do, how can uh you know, have you seen organizational culture be powerful enough to where it enables an organization to win in that way? I know it's not necessarily win and loss of a win and a loss like in sports, but it can be. I mean, if you're either successful or you're not, uh, oftentimes as an organization, do you see it having a direct impact on that? Yes. So my most frequent clients for the past 10 years have been schools in inner cities, uh, really tough schools. And sometimes we were brought in to really try to turn the school around and it's amazing it can be the same neighborhood um, it can be the same uh, kind of socioeconomic stats uh, poverty levels and things that are that, that one would assume oh this is a really tough school and I've literally gone to schools that were blocks apart 
and they were night and day based on the positive culture versus the negative culture. And, and I think in particular, and educators will see this, but that that optimism and that belief that things can get better versus that sort of learned helplessness that uh, this is just a really awful place and these kids are awful and there's nothing to, we can do to make it better. And so absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I think, and honestly, uh, I think complaining is, it's a symptom but also a cause because it becomes a habit. Uh, it, it's a pet peeve of mine. Just, I feel like, well, there's some studies on this now uh, where complaining actually changes our brain. Uh, if we complain all the time, our brains hear that in an, in an undeletable form. You know, you can ignore or delete lots of different things that come into your brain through your senses. But my own voice, my brain doesn't delete my voice. That's why affirmations work. People say positive affirmations out loud. Well, for the same reason, my brain hears this complaining and it actually is training my own brain to look for what's bad. And I've just seen that be so horrendous to a culture. It's not that you're not allowed to raise issues or problems, but if you're constantly complaining, your brain hears that, everyone else hears it, and it's it's just terrible for the culture. Hmm. So in addition to that, I would say one other an, an antidote for that is have a forum in which people can raise legitimate issues, you know, in a safe and solution oriented way, rather than just the, uh, is it okay to say bitch session? <laughs> uh, sure. I think everybody feels like they need to vent sometimes, but, but too much of that, obviously that gets, that gets really toxic. And I would say it's more destructive than people even think. Yeah. 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 Agreed. And it, and it snowballs and uh, builds momentum in a, in a, in a bad way. Uh, but in, in addition to that negativity, uh, what are some of the other uh, challenges that you commonly see with, with organizational culture? This might be slightly related to our micromanager discussion, but I think the a lack of trust sometimes from from leaders to the people that they're leading i would like to err on the side of believing that my people are capable uh so i'm also the parent of two kids with special needs and this was the best advice the love and logic founders ever gave me and it's always err on the side of believing that they're capable and the exception would be when it's something that's not safe so I didn't, you know, I didn't hand my kids the, the car keys when they were five and just say, oh, they'll probably be fine because that's not safe. But if it came down to trusting that they could do something or believing that they were capable or not, I'd rather err on the side of believing they're capable. So I think that's a big deal with leaders is sometimes it's my own issue still uh, letting myself trust those people that they can get it done, maybe until they prove otherwise or that they need some more help or some more direction. But I, I see the best leaders, they tend to really be invested in empowering their people. And then sometimes uh, my ego will say, I'm the only one that knows, or I'm the only one that can do this. And if I don't do it myself, it's not gonna get done right. You hear stuff like that. Uh, to me, a really good leader is constantly trying to kind of grow those seeds of the people that they're leading 
so that they become more capable. And then if I'm the leader, my life gets better and easier. Yeah. You have a really talented team around you and uh, yeah, it, it, to some that might be a threat because that could be a potential successor or they might displace you as the leader, I guess, in theory. But um, if you, if you kind of set that aside and don't worry about that by creating all these great team members and creating a great team that just makes you a better leader. And to your point, it makes it easier as a leader too. Yeah. You don't have to be threatened by those good people around you. They're, uh, they're an asset and you should be glad they're on your team. Exactly. Yeah. And not, not someone else's or, you know, different, a different company's team for sure. Okay. Good stuff. Thanks, Jed. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with more transformation. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Jed Hafer. We're talking about organizational dynamics, leadership, all kinds of stuff related to transformation. Let's get right back to the interview. Um, what about, you talked a little bit about um, at the beginning, or not at the beginning, but a few minutes ago, you were talking about um, uh, conflict in general and how we all have, you know, different opinions and, you know, Jerry Springer moments and all that stuff. Um, but in the, in the work we do, we're dealing with really business and technology transformation. So we're dealing with fairly significant, massive changes that in some cases are being imposed on the company because the economy is changing, the competition's eating their lunch, and they have to change to survive. In other cases, organizations are trying to just be more strategic and uh, get a competitive advantage. And so they're uh, going through a situation where they're changing to get that strategic advantage. But either way, it's a massive amount of change. It creates um, a lot of tension, a lot of conflict. It, it threatens people's you know, political position in the companies. It changes their jobs. It, it makes them feel like a fish out of water at times because they have to learn something totally new. Um, what have you, what are some tips for leaders that are going through that sort of transformation, which is much, you know, I'd say most of the people listening right now are people that are either leading or part of a massive change within their organizations. What, what tips would you have for, for those sorts of leaders to, to sort of deescalate and to, uh, neutralize that tension and that conflict that goes along with change? Yeah, I would really lean into relationship and trust early so that when we go through something that's difficult uh, and a friend of mine recently said and he's a great consultant to businesses and he said you're going through a change you, you need a friend uh, who, who doesn't need someone that they feel close to that they feel uh, comfortable with that they feel some trust for when they're going through something which change is always a little bit scary so I think the best leaders are proactive about building this 
relationship, uh, sort of positive vibe between the parties before we uh, take the hill uh, or, you know, have to have to charge and do that difficult thing. Let's uh, let's make sure there's a good at least a bond, a professional bond of trust. I mean, we don't have to necessarily be best friends and all hang out together uh, after hours. But I think I have to feel a, a positive connection with that person if I'm going to go through a change with them, because change is scary. And I want uh, people around me that I feel trust and, and, and comfort with uh, if I'm going through a change. Uh, that's probably underestimated as uh, for, for leaders as, as a step before we go through this change. I think we do a lots of warning and telling people this is going to be really hard. Uh, let's take a little bit of extra time to uh, care about each other and 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 be be kind and empathetic with one another. That will go a long way as we're going through the difficult stuff. And then you you see this on the other end when we've gone through tough stuff together, it tends to to strengthen the relationship. As long as we didn't turn on each other and, and try to try to kill one another. <laughs> right, that's an important caveat, an important uh, prerequisite to to effective. Uh, change in de-escalation, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, don't be afraid of disagreeing. Don't be afraid of, of at least conflicting opinions. Right. So that, there's a difference there, right? I mean, it, um, tension and conflict don't necessarily need to be one and the same with disagreement or spirited debate or healthy healthy debate, right? Is, I mean, would, would you agree with that, or is there you know, how do you, how do you delineate between the two? I took one uh, one group that I consulted with through just an exercise to prove to them that it was okay to disagree. I think we debated something completely uh, pointless, like uh, oh this this group they were they were uh, college football fans, and so we debated how they did overtime. They changed a few years ago. They changed the way they did overtime in college football, which inconsequential really to most of our lives. Uh, but I had them debate, you know, is it, should it be this way or this way? Had nothing to do with their job or their organization just to sort of prove, okay, we can disagree. And I may not even know where uh, my coworker stands on this issue, but neither one of us died, you know, and we don't have to hate each other just because we disagreed. I, I think that's a fairly healthy thing is just, it, it's okay for us to be uh, different. Some of the healthiest schools I've been to have been in areas where there's a real rivalry. So I went to a school in, in Alabama and about half the staff were Auburn fans and half the staff were Alabama fans. And that's a bitter rivalry. Yeah. Uh, but actually very healthy. They would go at each other, but it was almost like, oh, this is, this is okay. This is safe. We can do this. And I think it actually uh, fostered some some healthier disagreement about stuff that really did matter. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. It, it's sort of a um, the, the stakes are lower in that debate, too. So it kind of helps you in a safe way, have the work through some of that tension and conflict. Yeah, just if you, if you were lifting weights, you'd start with a lighter weight. So yeah, let's let's uh, be uh, able to disagree about something where the stakes aren't uh, aren't too high or life and death. We might get some letters from people who are Alabama or Auburn fans saying, "Actually, that is uh, that is pretty big deal." <laughs> but right, you know it what I mean. Life and death does. <laughs> right. So what about um, 
so you we've been kind of talking about this in the context of um you know uh situations that arise that create conflict and you know healthy debate that sort of evolves into tense tenser situations is there a way and maybe you've, you may have already sort of answered this with the uh, the auburn versus alabama uh exercise but is there a way that other ways that leaders could maybe uh mitigate or minimize the potential likelihood that you're going to end up in a tense uh high degree of conflict but still encourage with it without losing the need to encourage healthy debate i mean is there a way to navigate that to sort of prevent it before it ever gets to that point of of you know overly tense conflict the big one that i talk to leaders about is modeling some humility modeling that ability to be be wrong and admit that I'm wrong and that it's not the end of the world uh, when I make a mistake. I, I think that's an important one. A leader can intentionally model, hey, even me, the boss, even me, the leader, I can get it wrong. I can be corrected. Feedback is my friend. I don't have to get uh, super upset or lash out at the person who, who pointed out my error. Right. Yeah. So that kind of all starts with that leader, the leader and the leader's behavior and approach. And, you know, you're sort of setting the tone as a leader, I suppose, is, is really what you're saying. Yeah, a lot more leadership is modeling than we realize, just like just like parenting. Uh, it's it's kids modeling what, what they see for me, which is bad news because it means I have to behave in front of my kids, at least. Right. Uh, I have right. to make good decisions and behave well. But if, if my if the people I'm leading see me humble enough to admit my mistakes and and be disagreed with it, I think I think that sets the tone and we kind of make the weather where it agrees. And I think the whole world needs more of that, you know, not just organizations. Yeah. Yeah, I think we we all as individuals and humans can can definitely use more of that and for ourselves and the people around us too, for sure. Mm-hmm. So what about, um, I guess just to sort of wrap, you tie this all together, all the stuff you, you've, we've been talking about so far, um, you think about leading change, um, whether you're a leader in an organization or whether you are a team member, consultant, whatever the case may be, or you're thinking about going through a massive change as an organization, what, what sort of closing advice would you, would you leave for people involved in that sort of organizational change? If you, if you had to leave sort of those tidbits that sort of summarizes what we've talked about or maybe anything we haven't covered, what are those tidbits of like, these are the top things you should really think about or have, you know, be top of mind as you're go, going through your transformation? I'm kind of thinking about our our key principles at, at Mission Peace. Um, I'll just run through a, a few of them real quick, but it, it starts with respectful engagement again which is we define as a decision we make ahead of time i'm going to stay respectful no matter what uh we talk about intentional messaging really being thoughtful about what we're communicating and um whether it be this is something i i work with companies uh the verbal communication the nonverbal, the written if an email comes out or a memo how to word that and also on the customer service side you know how to answer an angry customer email or vendor email or whatever there, there's so there's so much uh, to being intentional about our communication 
so many problems could be uh, prevented if, if we were just a little bit more intentional about our messaging. Uh, the last one is thoughtful assessment. We were sort of just talking about that, the ability to, to honestly evaluate, how did that go? Uh, what could we do better? How could we uh, grow and learn from this? And I think the last thing I would say is be, be more people oriented than you even think. I think a lot of companies go, we care about our people, we're people oriented. Be even more about that individual, be thinking whatever the size of your organization, be thinking about the individual, you know, what are they going through? This, this is what, what empathy really is, is that it's not even my ability to put myself in your shoes, it's my willingness to, my, my commitment to really trying to understand what's going on, uh, understanding that I can't really truly understand, but I'm gonna try my very best to, uh, but, but be more invested in those individuals than you even think because you know that, that strong bond uh, around you with that team is probably gonna take you further uh, even than a, a good strategy. Mm. Yeah, great, great stuff. I mean, the, you know, the one that might've stood out the most, which, you know, saying it out loud now just sounds so basic. Like how could this possibly be the, the biggest takeaway from this conversation for me? But it, it's that relationship piece that you were talking about. It seems like so much of what we're talking about is you think back to root causes and, you know, what cause and effect and the symptoms that you see in organizational dynamics and the tense situations is it the relationships. I mean, you've talked a lot about how the, the relationships and communication and the, the trust that you build between people. Once you have that, you know, if I trust you and I don't agree with you, I'm probably not going to treat you like garbage and I'm not going to be disparaging to you because I don't like your idea. I'm probably going to listen to you because I respect, I trust you. I, I know you, I like you or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's it just, it sounds so basic again, saying it out loud, but I, it's just something that, that is so basic that I think a lot of times we just forget about it or you just sort of lose sight of a real easy, not an easy solution, but it's not, it's not necessarily rocket science in terms of how to solve some of those dynamics. That's it. And it is, it, it is simple, but that stance of respect, and appreciation for my fellows that's that's the stuff i teach and to me that's going to make a company better uh we, there's plenty of other flaws that that smarter people than me can fix but to, to me that one is is so foundational and it'll make any organization better all right thanks jed that was super helpful uh i appreciate you working through the technical issues we had there and appreciate the audience bearing with us on the on some of those technical issues it's never uh it's not always pretty and some of those conversations. So hopefully we, we got the, the content down though, and uh, hopefully you got some good good uh, value out of that discussion. In fact, uh, I got so much out of that. I've, I've got some more, we've got some more stuff we want to talk about after a break. Kyler and I are going to unpack some of these concepts here that Jed brought up and uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and do that as soon as we return from Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had this great discussion with Jed, which I enjoyed. I don't know what your thoughts were, but I, I love that conversation. I love the topic and I love what he specializes in. And I also loved sort of trying to tie it back to what, what we do and what we try to talk about on this show and, and what our team does at Third Stage as well. But what were your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I think this subject is so important. And a lot of times it can be, as we've seen, kind of stepped over in the fact that it's labeled as fluffy or anything like that. But we've seen through data that really employees that do feel that emotional connection to their employees, to their job, to their company, really do form, perform at a higher level. And that's so important when we come to those that thriving phase that we talked about at the beginning. Um, when um, we talk about the relationships or the overall proficiencies of employees. One question I had that I thought maybe you would have a unique perspective on is, you know, we're talking about all of these great things to be a leader within the organization. But what about when you have a tough manager or you're in kind of a coaching up role as a subordinate? How do you feel like you can optimize that relationship with um, a micromanager or someone that might not match your communication style in more of that employee-manager relationship? Well, I think it goes back to something that, that Jed mentioned and talked about in the interview, which was the the relationships and in, in the communication. And uh, I know this is something I actually struggled with early in my career where, you know, I didn't like being micromanaged and uh, I like to have a certain amount of independence. And that's, uh, you know, quite honestly, a big part of why I started my own company is because I wanted that independence and, and whatnot. But what I learned after, you know, starting a company is that problem didn't go away for me. You know, being an introvert and being independent and not like, liking to be micromanaged, and I certainly don't like to micro, micromanage as a leader, I learned that, that that stuff, those dynamics don't just go away just because you start a company. So every, I think every leader and every employee is going to struggle with that to some degree, depending on what your personalities are and how they mix. But I think in the case you're describing, if you're an employee that, that struggles with that or is having that issue – a lot of times you have to look at, you know, why might they be micromanaging? Is it a, is it a distrust sort of thing? And, and if they're distrusting, is it that that's the core part of their personality or is it because I'm not communicating enough to them? Maybe they need more visibility into what I'm doing or need to understand what I'm doing. And so if I go out of my way and proactively explain what I'm doing and sort of open up that channel of communication a little bit more and build that relationship, perhaps that micromanagement goes away. Now, it's not always going to work that way. There's just certain people, you know, as Jed said, that it's more, uh, I think he mentioned it's more ego-based or it's, a, you know, sort of a, a fragile ego uh, sort of a, a situation uh, and maybe a lack of trust sort of situation. But I think even if that's true and it's never going to fully go away, the, the problem that you described, communication relationships can, can't hurt. You know, it, it can only help. So I'd, I'd say that, you know, probably I'd give the same answer that, that Jed gave in, in one of the other uh, threads we were talking about in that discussion. Yeah. And I like how he was like, you know, you should hang out with that micromanager and <laughs> yeah, get some beers or grab a coffee or something like that um, to really kind of 
crack that shell and um, create that more vulnerable relationship where you can kind of have some trust birthed out of that um, communication. I think a lot of things I took from Jed is, you know, I tend to be more on the direct communicator side. So sitting down with my manager and saying like, do you not like me? Which, you know, would be quite a, you know, a, a brass approach to some people that might be in that, um, that type of role. So I, I liked how he kind of was more gentle and graceful of, around how, you know, important that conversation can be. Um, you know, another thing that I, I think is important to kind of evaluate, just knowing in this COVID climate or in a more kind of hybrid work climate, how to create those relationships. And I, I know that that's something that you've done with your clients in client services for years. And I, I wondered if you had any recommendations about someone wanting to create those more powerful relationships in a working environment in more of a, a digital communication format. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely more challenging and it's not as easy as if you can just, you know, walk down the hallway and, and go see your boss or, or project team. But I think in this case, you know, you still, you, you can, there's alternate ways you can do that. You can still carve out time to have a, a Microsoft Teams or Zoom discussion. Um, you know, you can have more collaborative discussions and that sort of thing. The only difference here is that, you know, you have to schedule it a lot of times. You, you're not going to be as likely just to see someone available on Microsoft Teams or whatever, and you're just going to happen to catch them. So you end up having to schedule and sort of plan more deliberately maybe than if you were just, uh, you know, hanging out in the office and running and in, bumping into people in the way you might have in the past. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is just uh, taking time to carve out time for that stuff. I think in the last year and a half, we've all become so focused on productivity and we've been enamored by the fact that now we can get all this stuff done and we can f squeeze in so many meetings in a day now because we don't have to commute or um, go very far or in some cases even get dressed or shower. So you save all this time. So, uh, but it's easier to forget, you know, let's not forget to, to keep those relationships and that communication going, you know, as informally as we can make it in this digital and semi remote world that we're living in. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, th that is one kind of in unfortunate part that I always like when we get together in the office, just cause I feel more connected to the company and to our team members um, something that I took an action step on my part that I'd love to do with my team is just be more intentional about that communication. So maybe it's first thing in the morning when you're kind of going through organizing your email, you send a message um, on chat to each one of your employees to say, you know, how was your weekend? Or, you know, really reach out in ways that would be kind of more natural in an in-person setting, but could really make them feel like they are valued and that you you do truly care about them, which, you know, we learned from Jed is extremely important when it comes to that type of relationship. On the, yeah. the parenting, oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say the, uh, you know, I think, you know, depending on where you are in the world and where your restrictions may or may not limit your ability to meet in person, if you are in part of the world where there is an opportunity even if it requires social distancing or masks or whatever the case may be, if, if you have an opportunity to meet occasionally in person, I mean, there's, there's nothing that really replicates that in my opinion. So I think if you can take those opportunities selectively if needed or wherever you can get it in a way that everyone feels safe and you're not, you know, forcing the issue, I think that that can be helpful as well. 
Yeah, and even on the that reminds me of our conversation with Cameron Carpenter um, a few weeks back about just talking about the importance of that relationship in you know a talent planning um, scenario or wanting to actually get a job in like consulting. How relationships are so important. As he reached out to you um, and said, you know, I I want to talk to you about this, and I would say nine times out of ten, as long as that influencer, that thought leader, industry leader has time they're very likely to talk to you because they're, you know, passionate about what they do. So, um, you know, that kind of draws me back to that conversation too, is how important those relationships can be can, from a career development standpoint as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And then I, I love the parenting tie, maybe because I, I am a new parent. So I spend a lot of my time trying to think how I'm going to raise, you know, whole, human beings um, that are, you know, mentally stable, I hope, and, you know, thrive in that way. Um, but I wonder, from a CEO standpoint, is how do you relate that back to parenting? Is that kind of like CEO of the household and CEO Eric Kimbling of third stage? Or are there kind of marriages between, you know, the different aspects that it comes from leading a company to leading a family? I think there's a lot of similarities um, and more than I ever thought. Um, and like I said, I, I read Love and Logic more as a back to the survival versus thriving. I was just trying to survive as a parent because I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I'd never planned on having kids. And here all of a sudden I'm uh, dating and then engaged to someone who had kids. And I realized very quickly, I better figure this out pretty quick if, <laughs> if I'm going to make this work. So it was that survival instinct for sure. But um, it was this, the secondary unintended benefit was that it also helped on the, on the professional side. And I think the reason for that is because love and logic and all the concepts that, that Jed specializes in is so, it's so simple. I mean, it's, it's, first of all, it's grounded in psychology and, uh, it's very, you know, it's very well studied, but it's also very simple. I mean, it's not that difficult. And, and I think sometimes in the professional and business world, we overcomplicate things, we overthink things, we have too many complexities we're dealing with. We make rash decisions with incomplete information and, or we don't want to know the, you know, what the options are. And so, you know, it just leads to a lot of blind spots and bad decisions. And Love and Logic is focused on decisions and consequences and accountability. And that's all stuff that is simple as it sounds. That's all stuff that's missing in a lot of organizations, especially the ones that struggle with their transformations or struggle with internal politics or, poor leadership, whatever the case may be. I think that those types of organizations, especially could learn, you know, some of these really simple concepts and apply them organizationally as well. Absolutely. And, and I know you've been really transparent about your own journey in building a company that somehow got away from you in the culture vision that you were trying to build. And then, you know, your intention in building third stage. So I thought, you might be able to kind of enlighten us of of some changes that you were intentional about making from that people standpoint in starting third stage. Yeah. So it, the biggest thing was just paying more attention to and being more deliberate about the culture that we were creating. And when I started my last company, I didn't think about culture. I didn't care about it, which is really ironic because I was a change management consultant right. when I started my career. But yet when it came to my own company, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to hire a bunch of smart people. They're going to know what they're doing. They're going to be able to deliver to our clients and how hard can it be? And, you know, cultures, that's more of a big company problem. I don't need to worry about it as a startup, that sort of thing. That's the way I thought, you know, 15 years ago. 
Um, but then when I started third stage, after having seen the, the negative implications of that uh, lack of attention to culture the first time around, I knew that I had to spend a lot more time on it uh, this time around. So that that's probably the biggest thing is just having that deliberate focus on culture and you know, certainly not having all the answers. And I, I don't know necessarily where we'll be in three or five years. I know where mm-hmm. we're headed. I think we have a pretty clear vision. We don't have, you know, as tangible of benchmarks along the way as we probably could. And that's something we're, we're deliberately working on now. But the part of the reason for that is because I've been so focused on just getting that core foundational soul of the company the way I want it to be. Not to say it's perfect or, you know, it's, it's 100% the way I want it to be, but you know, we're getting as close as we can possibly get it. Um, so that's, that's probably the biggest thing. And, and, and I think from there that's sort of led to now we can start thinking about longer term goals and now we're all aligned as a team and we're rowing in the same direction and we've got a really good team behind us. And I think that's the way a lot of leaders should be thinking too, is, you know, whether you're building a team from the ground up or whether you're trying to recruit people internally to support you in a transformation, you have to think about, you know, what is the culture and the DNA of that team and what's the fingerprint that that's going to leave on the rest of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's so important. Um, And it sounds like that awareness piece is, is one kind of key trait that you would assign a leader that is going through a digital transformation. If you could pick two more key traits that kind of came out of the conversation with you and Jed when it comes to someone who is a leader or who is trying to be a digital transformation leader, what would those two traits be? Well, I, I think I may have already alluded to it in passing, but I'll, maybe I'll call it out as a standalone. One is the relationships. Um, that's Relationships is another one that I, pro, that I did under value early on in my career, not just, not because I didn't care about people, but because I was so focused on the end product of what I was trying to deliver or what, you know, whatever the task at hand was, I was so focused on that. And I would build the relationships that I thought I needed to help get to that, to that, um, means to an end. And what I have learned, you know, both as a CEO of third stage, but also as a consultant, consulting two organizations, you find that the relationships you build, you know, internally, a lot of times it's those random relationships that you think aren't going to have any immediate value. It's so often that those turn into something more than what you thought. And and if anything, it just connects, it just sort of creates all these connectors between you and the rest of the world in terms of ideas and philosophies and potential other relationships that might help you more immediately, whatever the case may be. So that's something I definitely undervalued. Um, And, you know, I'm an introvert, so I'm not the most outgoing person. So it's harder for me to go out of my way to build relationships, but, um, so I have to try really hard and I have to focus on it. Um, but when I do, um, it's rare that I, if ever anymore that I feel like, oh, that that's not really, this relationship isn't really valuable to me or whatever. You have to sort of view it longer term as, as a longer term, uh, play. And it's also nice just to get to know other people, you know, other peers within the organization or outside the organization as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That relationship piece, obviously, it's is key to, you know, making a, a high and productive culture um, within an organization. And that, again, is so important to just overall ROI. So even if it's something um, that you measure, I know um, one of our directors, Nate, did a recent blog on how to measure change management and what that looks like. Uh, so even if you are working with a, a real um quantitative type of executive group, you do have the opportunity to kind of measure it that way. Um, 
So thank you for sharing that conversation and, you know, your journey as a parent. I personally think that there's no harder role to assume than a step stepdad role. I was raised by a stepdad, so good for you <laughs> for learning that relationship and um, and taking that into the business world. So great conversation with you and Jed, and I, I think we're going to talk about how this also makes sense with our small to medium size businesses as well coming up here. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I learned something new about you every episode. I didn't know you were raised by a stepfather. So that's, that's good to know. Yeah, another I, another I thing was, we haven't gotten yeah. there. Yeah, good to know. <laughs> well, cool. So it's not, I'm, I'm not alone. That's good to know. There's a, a support. Well, good. Well, well, thanks for that. That was, that was really good stuff. I feel like Jed's a, someone we could have on again and spend hours talking with and still not unpack everything oh, absolutely. within his, his world. So that's definitely good stuff. Um, well, good. Well, we'll shift gears a little bit and uh, have Adam Cheatham on the show here in just a moment. We're going to play a clip from a, a recent conference presentation that he gave uh, related to the things that you should do at the beginning of your transformation, especially if you're a small and mid-sized organization. So these are all the foundational. There's seven things he covers in this presentation. There are seven foundational things that really any organization should do before they start their transformation, but he's going to give it a spin for more of the mid-market and, and smaller organizations as well. So... Be sure to stick around for that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. I'm all right today. You don't find if you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberly here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find us every Wednesday, new episodes on YouTube, as well as on all the audio podcast platforms like Google, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, etc. So be sure to check us out with new episodes every Wednesday. Be sure to also check us out and follow us on social media. If you're on YouTube, Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, any of those, be sure to follow both Third Stage, Third Stage's account, Third Stage Consulting, as well as myself. Uh, we're, we're on there posting daily good content, stuff that uh, will hopefully help you in your digital transformation journeys. And speaking of digital transformation journeys, I'm excited to have our next guest on the show. Um, I feel like maybe you should introduce him, Kyler, just because you know, him. you know him a little bit better than I do, given that you have the same last name and you just happen to be married to the guy, right? So any, yes. any thoughts, you want, any, any grand introduction you want to give of, yes, of your husband, no, Adam Cheatham? It is um, my relationship that got me into uh, working with Third Stage, which I'm very happy for. So I'm very excited to introduce my brilliant and handsome husband who's talking about <laughs> small businesses. Um, we also are in the new parenting phase. So we have a, a daughter that turned one yesterday. So very exciting. And uh, two and a half. So yeah, thank you. So we're, um, we're working on um, learning how to be that conscious parent as well. So 
Um, but I think when we talk about small businesses, it's it's usually my favorite thing to talk about when it comes to um, transformations because I feel like there's just so much more wrapped up in working with that small to mid-tier business and so much more kind of passion around that because many of them are entrepreneurs or small business owners, you know, that are really coming to third stage for advice and help. So I think having a, a roadmap on really where to start is so important um, because there's so many other bigger factors that um, come when you are really a small to, to medium-sized business. There's much more on the line, much more risk um, for digital transformation. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. It's more personal too. Absolutely, yeah. And, and those relationships and that human component um, you may have someone in your accounting department that started the business and, you know, managed it through a spreadsheet. So understanding that's a real emotional transition for the people side of things. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of what Adam says here are really um, action steps that small to mid-sized businesses can take when going through this. Um, and then, of course, we want to introduce on our, our um, YouTube channel, Christy Barber, who is actually our small business specialist. So she has a whole playlist on our YouTube channel. So if you are a small business and you have questions about a transition from QuickBooks or budgeting or who should be on your implementation team, um, Christy goes through all of those things over on our channel too. So definitely check that out. Yeah, good stuff. Well, yeah, that, that sounds good. That's a, that's a good plug for some of the other content that you can find out on the Third Stage channel. And uh, we post a lot of that stuff on, out on social media as well. So uh, let's, let's get into it. Let's jump into the clip here with Adam. And again, this is a, a presentation he gave uh, at a recent conference that we hosted, uh, one of our Digital Stratosphere events. And uh, the topic is how to start or how to begin your digital transformation journey, especially if you're a mid-size or smaller organization. And if you're listening to this on the audio only platform, um, you can also check out on the YouTube channel if you want to see the, the slides or the corresponding materials that go along with it. But he does a good job of verbalizing this stuff as well. But if you want to see the graphics, uh, be sure to check out the YouTube uh, replay of this. So let's cut to it right now. Here's, here's Adam Cheatham. He's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting talking about how to get started on your transformation journey. With all of these things that we've learned today about the, the big picture and some of the case studies, I wanted to start the conversation in this last hour uh, with how do I get started, right? That some of you are in the middle of that um, and some of you are, are at the very beginning. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, the goal here is to say, how do I set my feet so that I can undergo this digital transformation for my small and medium-sized business? Um, we'll start off with a little reminder about who Third Stage is, what we do, um, what makes small to medium businesses different and then start talking about our seven steps to start your digital transformation. Um, we will take questions, of course, as we have been along the way. Um, I do want to uh, particularly say thank you, not just to everybody, but to those of you who are uh, have joined us late at night, um, you know, the, with the folks in Namibia and Spain it being 11 p.m. And, and after midnight, we appreciate uh, you guys joining us, as well as all those others in, in sunny San Diego as well. So uh, we'll get started. Um, Reminders about third stage, so most of you probably know some of these things. Or, uh, my name is Adam Cheatham. I'm a director of strategy and transformation at third stage. And uh, here's just a little bit about, about me, uh, that, that I, the experience that I bring to the table. 
Um, I've done these types of transformations all around the globe with small, medium, large businesses, uh, with headquarters on all, um, all six major continents, with the exception of course Antarctica, um, and and organizations that have been have global spreads as well. Third stage is 100% software, hardware, and industry agnostic, uh, which allows us to be those action-oriented business advocates. Uh, you'll notice in here that in my presentation, I don't talk about software uh, specifically at all because the whole point here is to focus on your business and, and technology as an enabler. Um, our team of consulting and industry leaders focus solely on your success, um, which allows us to not only be uh, collaborative with you guys, but focus on what it is our clients' needs are and, and that you'll see these types of themes in this type of a presentation as well as anything that comes from the stage. So from a perspective of what makes a small and medium-sized business different, we talked about this before, but um, when it comes to digital transformation particularly, I broke it into six different buckets where uh, from a size perspective, these companies have a smaller footprint. Um, they have a more limited market reach uh, in most cases, and there are conflicting demands on a smaller set of revenue. Um, you know, the, you know, with the multi-billion-dollar companies that can, uh, you know, a, a two hundred thousand-dollar project is is a drop in the bucket and a rounding error. But for a small business, um, a two hundred thousand-dollar software uh, implementation. Uh, could could break the bank, and that's something that is uh, always uh, important to consider. Uh, from a velocity perspective, uh, growth can be quite a lot more rapid. Uh, I uh, recently talked to somebody who started their uh, their digital transformation journey at twenty four million dollars uh, in two thousand sixteen, and they are projecting seven hundred million dollars uh, this year. And that's a um, growth can be rapid. Um, spikes can be far more impactful to the business, um, but changes are a bit more unpredictable from a perspective of the velocity of the business. Uh, from a capacity perspective, you know, big initiatives take a bigger chunk of that capacity. It's a larger uh, piece of the puzzle, and uh, competing initiatives become more impactful. So for those of you who have considered uh, a digital transformation, how many times have you run into the idea that, yeah, you know, a digital transformation um, would be great, but we have other things to focus on, um, like keeping the lights on and, and, and running our daily business. How many of you guys um, feel free to either chime in with the mic off or uh, through the chat box? How many of you guys have run into that type of a problem? It's, a, it's not an uncommon thing for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, part of that is because of the resource availability. You have fewer, uh, you have fewer employees, you have fewer materials, whether that be from a perspective of fulfilling orders or just materials on hand to accomplish a goal. Um, you know, somebody mentioned earlier this next piece, but the knowledge of technology in, in a small business can be uh, can be a challenge, whether it's um, only in one particular space or none at all, or just in one person. And that becomes a, a problem when we start talking about folks who are single points of failure and, and become the focus of a large chunk of the business. Um, from a perspective of small, medium-sized business, there are there is an advantage in agility. They're typically higher uh, in flexibility and, and quicker to react. Um, part of that's based on the, the, the shorter sight into future conditions in the marketplace. Um, but overall, 
risk is a um, is a is a very real thing to small and medium sized businesses because um, unpredictability and conditions and potential impacts to failure are, are far more dramatic, and uh, mitigation strategies become more important because it's not about large sums of money; it's about business survival in a lot of cases. If you have problems with um, digital transformation failure or any type of initiative uh, that a small business would take on that might uh, become a challenge. So to get started on the, the overall steps towards your digital transformation, and uh, again, feel free to chime in along the way or to interrupt me um, to, to talk about any particular point. Um, the first step is to align on a vision and strategy. Uh, a vision and strategy should help you and your organization align on what it is you expect and seek to achieve from a digital transformation. Um, it needs to be your guiding principles throughout your digital transformation so that you can work as a team to define what your, what your direction is going to be. Uh, when I work with small businesses um, and frankly large businesses too, uh, I have four key topics that I really like to focus on to start to learn where our alignment might be. Uh, the first is, what do you expect your growth projections to be over the next three to five years? This is important because the digital transformation is a long-term project. This isn't something that um, is gonna be done in, in three to six months. It is something that takes time. And, and the, the benefits of it will be, uh, will be significant, but they do also take time to develop. So what do you expect of your company um, with or without a digital uh, digital transformation over the next three to five years. Just as importantly, what are your competitive advantages in the marketplace? Um, you know, why, why do people choose your business over your competitors? Why do people choose your business at all? In some cases, it's because you offer the highest quality. Um, in other cases, it's because you offer the, the best customer service. And uh, in just as many cases, it's because you offer the lowest price at the fastest response. And those are three very different things that uh, choosing your pathway on a digital transformation needs to accommodate because it, software can take you in any, any direction um, if, you, if you let it. And you don't want this type of thing to happen to you. You also wanna think about your digital transformation expectations. Um, so that you're being realistic with what you can achieve and what you can't. And that the realistic is something that uh, will come up throughout this presentation a couple more times, but know where you stand and where it is you want to go. You know, going from zero to uh, to 100 in, in the span of a couple of weeks is not realistic. And it, if that's something that is uh, an expectation of those on the team, you know, it's, digital transformations will not solve all your problems they can certainly enable your people to solve your problems. And that's a key, uh, key difference. Um, and then uh, of course, you wanna be uh, cognizant of the risks of this type of a change to your organization, uh, what your tactics are for mitigating them um, and, and how it is those risks could impact your business because it is something that is not without risk. Um, step two is to take stock of a digital maturity assessment. You'll see here on the right, you have five levels um, and, and from unstable to firefighter, trusted operator, business partner, and innovator. Um, where are your current digital skill sets and where do you want to be? 
Uh, this is another space to be realistic. Just because you're unstable today doesn't mean you need to be an innovator ever. If your goal here is just to have a digital transformation that um, can can help you uh, run your, your applications and, and complete work orders and think great. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, the, where you end up on the scale um, is, is unique to any business. Um, but just as important on where you are and where you wanna be is how are you going to get there? How big of a leap is this? If we're talking about realistic, um, are we go, you know, going up one level is gonna be hard enough uh, skip, skipping a level entirely and going up two levels is even harder. Uh, so what, what is it, how big of a leap are we targeting here? And, and, and can we accomplish this? Um, you know, what, what are the capabilities that we expect to gain and how will we support this digital future? Because when we're talking about taking on a system, you know, those who may be migrating off of QuickBooks and Excel are likely to be more in that unstable space. Um, and moving into uh, reliable infrastructure with an IT service desk that can answer questions on admin and how to log in and reset passwords, that might be good enough for you, and that's fine. Um, but that still requires some folks to help. Even the most lean um, cloud systems require somebody to be an admin um, on that, and you want to make sure that um, where, you, where you sit and what your maturity is in this space and where it can be is, uh, um, is taken into account. Uh, the next is to document your current state. Um, you know, what is the scope of this digital transformation? Uh, what functional areas are you including? Just as importantly, what functional areas are you not including? Um, payroll's a, a, good, a good one that's a, a polarizing conversation. Um, is payroll included in this? Is mold uh, ERP systems in general don't, especially for the small and medium-sized business uh, sector, don't have a payroll module. They don't. They leave that to an outsourced uh, organization. Or is payroll the the center of your digital transformation? We want to get our payroll off um, off of a manual process and into a software. You want to start. After that, by documenting your current state. Once you know what, what's included, uh, look at your current state from a perspective of requirements and process maps. Um, the two of these things are important from a requirements perspective because it becomes your checklist for what it is software of some kind can do for you. And what, what do you need? Um, when you're talking about process maps, um, how do you conduct business? And, and this will start getting a little bit more um, impactful when we talk future state, but you want to know what your processes are because at some point you're going to have to automate those in a digital environment. And to do that, you're going to need to know where you're starting so you can identify, so you can get into step four, which we'll talk about in a moment. Engage the right teams. Um, if you are talking ERP, uh, Make sure you have cross-functional participation. You know, it's a, a small team that can see the whole business strategically from end to end um, and can see the, the impacts of, uh, of a, a change on finance, procurement, and production altogether when you start talking about implementing some type of MRP and demand planning. Somebody that can see that as opposed to having the siloed views of it is going to be very helpful in being able to make sure 
that you have a streamlined process that does create the efficiencies that you're looking to gain. You know, we uh, talked a little bit earlier about whether or not Sage can handle um, more than just the accounting section of it. And part of the, the point uh, of finding that out is to make sure that you have folks from multiple teams who can, who can see the full end-to-end -end process and be able to say, um, Sage might do it for them, but what it is that happen, what it is that causes us on our side is prohibitive. Um, you also so want to make sure you have the subject matter expertise. Uh, the people who do these jobs day in and day out should be involved, particularly in their functional area, so that they can provide the level of, of detail that is necessary to differentiate what they do today and what will be um, uh, digitally enabled tomorrow. You should all look at your um, existing digital environment with your existing systems and the architecture that is in place. It is not, un uh, it's actually highly uncommon that one software system does indeed replace all existing systems. Um, it is, it, it's very, very seldom. And to say that you're gonna look at this and just buy one system that is gonna become the silver bullet for for all of your digital transformation uh, worries, that's just not realistic. Um, so what you want to do is talk about your existing systems and how they're performing for you, which ones are gonna, which ones may stay and which ones may go, and what does that architecture look like today? Just as much you should be aware of how you use your data. Um, this is in two places. Uh, one of them is business intelligence. How do you use your data to know what the health of your business really is? Um, do, you, do you have a business intelligence tool at all? Um, how do you expect to use your data? And what type of compliance needs do you have, whether they be um, more from an industry perspective on a regulatory scale, but just as much internal compliance on how do you want to measure your own quality? Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation here with Adam. We'll, we'll keep rolling this clip uh, that he gave at a recent conference about how to begin your digital transformation if you're a mid-market organization. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. And we're in the middle of a presentation from Adam Cheatham, who's a Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting. And he's here talking with us about 
how to start your digital transformation if you're a mid-market or smaller organization. So let's come back to the clip right here. Step four is naturally defining your future state. Um, in this space, you want to focus on technology as an enabler. And once you're done reviewing those current state processes, focus on where your pain points are, redundancies and inefficiencies. Um, identify those areas where technology may be holding you back and start aligning these, these things on where they live today with what their, uh, your vision and strategy is for your, for your organization in the future. What this does is it allows you to start targeting those areas that are gonna be improvements. It, we're not out to solve all of the world's problems with a digital transformation. It's just not realistic. You can't automate everybody's job. Human interaction is an important part of doing business. And so you wanna make sure you know what areas you're going to gain efficiencies in and what areas you're not. Um, and this will allow you to redefine those processes and, um, and requirements so that you can reach a definition of your future state. Some of the key considerations for process improvements along the way, um, the types of things that you should be listening out for and that we like to listen out for when we start thinking about um, how, do we, how do we know where we can get better? How do we know what gains are, are available to us? My favorite is when you start thinking to yourself, there has to be a better way of doing this. There just has to be. Uh, this, this is far too difficult. So what is that better way of doing this? Start digging into that. Um, any place that's a manual input that may cause redundancy, um, I put this into one system and then I put it into another and then I put it into a third so that all the data is staying in sync, um, I hope. Uh, is, is a great um, point for process improvement because that's where automated workflows come in. Um, when you do something like create a sales order and put all the customer's name and information in there, their address and in their order, and then you create an invoice by copying and pasting or manually transposing that into another form, those should be automated processes that you can achieve quite a good, significant gain and benefit on. Um, any opportunity that you have for human error uh, that, that can be eliminated is a great opportunity for process improvement. And um, while I've seen some folks do some pretty uh, pretty spectacular and amazing things in Excel, um, I've, there's always some surprise for me about what somebody's doing with it um, out, out there lurking in my future. Anything that you're doing in Excel um, can be done in another system, and it can be done automated for you. How many of those things do you want to pull into a, uh, into a more digital environment? Key considerations for where you may be able to achieve technology improvements. Any integrations that require heavy manual involvement, whether it's some type of a batch job or um, it's moving um, an XML document from one system to another or transposing data from one to another. Any of those spaces that are um, that are supposedly integrations that require heavy manual input um, or, or, or checking and rechecking and validation for accuracy are great areas to consider for uh, what can be a technological improvement in the future. Um, any places you have the issues with data integrity, if you do not have a single source of truth, which is the source of all your organization's data, um, you, you, have, you are likely to have uh, issues with data integrity, whether it's from a, just a small level of inconsistency 
or some wildly inconsistent data. Um, a good way of measuring this is when you bring two sets of, uh, when folks come to you with two sets of the same kind of data, but they say different things, and you had to ask yourself which one of these is right. Um, that's that's a, a, a good indicator that you do not have one single source of truth in your data, and that's an important thing to have. Um, you also, when you start thinking about future state, you want to start thinking about how you want to use data to help you make more informed decisions. Um, from a, that's a generally the purpose of business intelligence and what you want to focus on when you're thinking about where you're going to be in your future state. Any, um, anyone out there have any specific pain points that they'd like to share uh, when they're talking, when they've been considering moving from their current state to a future state that they've had um, either some great success with or some real struggles with. If you think of anything along the way, please feel free to bring it up in the chat box and I'd love to talk about it because um, this is, defining the future state is always my favorite part of this because you start to think about it in such a, a blue sky, greenfield type of manner. What could be, what can we do? What, what, at this point, you're really thinking about this optimistically where the possibilities are endless. Um, the next spot though starts where we, these endless possibilities need to start thinking um, in terms of what is realistic? Uh, what do you need to be able to change to, uh, to achieve this future state? What should be left alone? You know, some things, you know, part of the purpose we talk about your competitive advantage in the marketplace and the vision and strategy is to know what parts of your business make you who you are so that they shouldn't change. They shouldn't change because they are a core part of who you are. Um, and this, uh, those are the types of compromises and concessions that people make in, uh, in software and find that the software forced them to do things in a way that changes their business and makes it less effective and less appealing in the marketplace. And just as much what can be created, do you have an MRP process? Do you, uh, do you do any type of demand planning? Is that something that you'd like to do? Where are those inputs going to come from? Um, and what needs to be removed? Those spreadsheets, uh, the uh, the data the data points that are uh, manual entry uh, that cause redundancy and opportunities for human error. Um, we like to think about this across a number of of spaces uh, with processes, data, people, technology, uh, locations, sourcing, timing. All of these things are things that will um, become part of the conversation when you're talking about moving from your current state to your future state. And, this, and in assessing the gaps, you should start thinking about a change impact assessment. Uh, how big is this change and how complex is it? Be realistic on this. Again, with, if this is a massive change for your organization and it is highly complex, uh, those are things that are going to cause you to want to take some time to get it right. If it's small and it's easy, you're implementing DocuSign, for example, that's different. Um, you know, but if we're, if we're talking about a full-blown ERP implementation, uh, that's a very large and very complex change. Um, so I have from Sarah, her pain points says segregated current state, designing digital processes for man currently manual ones, uh, and trusting a system to handle these manual processes. Um, that's actually uh, gets into this change impact assessment from a perspective of the impacts of change, positive and negative, and your perceived wins and losses. 
Uh, you know, in a lot of cases, people derive the value that they bring to your organization um, in terms of how the, of the things that they do and the, the, uh, the spreadsheets that they own and the processes that they facilitate um, and, and their ability to tell a system what to do. Um, in modern ERP systems and modern software in general, the system is going to be able to tell you what to do. Um, my favorite example is our always MRP. It's going to come up with a list of purchased orders that you should, the system believes that you should, you should accept. You have the opportunity to go one by one as opposed to having to do the math and create those purchase orders from scratch. That's a very different change um, in being able to uh, interact with that system and trusting that that system has brought the right purchase orders um, up is a, is a really a leap for a purchasing agent. And, and that's important. Um, moving those digital processes uh, into that space from a manual perspective is really a, uh, an exercise in trust and can be a significant leap of faith. Um, you know, the, the idea that uh, moving from a green screen to a, uh, a modern ERP where the green screen, you got all your hot keys and you know how to press them all real quick and you can tell the system, boom, 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 do this, do this, do this. Uh, that's a, a very ingrained behavior pattern where I have had people tell me um, that they are working and they have left the company with an advanced ERP to go to one with the green screen because they prefer it. And that's an important thing to understand and recognize from a perspective of uh, positive change and perceived wins and losses. Um, urgency and the risk of change are two particular things that are going to play uh, counterbalancing sides of things. Um, everybody that wants to undergo a digital transformation wants it done tomorrow, as soon as possible, because they, um, the longer it takes, um, the more difficult it's going to become, the more it's going to compete with existing resources, um, and the more uh, opportunities there are going to be. To be lost because that isn't in place yet. So the urgency is always there, um, but the risk is always there as well. Where doing it fast and getting it wrong is um, is not what we want. That's not what uh, what anybody wants. People don't undergo digital transformations because they're fast, easy, and inexpensive. They are none of those things. Step six is to come back to the table and create alignment. Um, now that you know where you are, where you're going to go, and how it is you're going to get there from a future state perspective and a change uh, impact assessment and what it is this wholly looks like, what's, what the impacts are going to be on your organization, um, come back to your vision and strategy um, and align on what it is you're going to do. Uh, the opportunities uh, for digital transformation are endless and they, they there are more and more of them that come out every day you can't do all of them and you can't it certainly can't do all of them first and knowing how this transformation is going to look uh, from a perspective of the alignment with your vision and strategy is important start to evaluate the impact the costs and the urgency these are three factors that um will help you understand where it is you want to go and when you want to get there. Um, the easiest ones or the easiest decisions are the ones that are urgent, they are high impact, 
and they cost very little money. Um, you know, those are those are easy. We call those low hanging fruit. Uh, the ones that create significant impact maybe cost a bit more money, um, but aren't necessarily urgent. Um, those are, are different types of opportunities. You want to start balancing the conversation on what do we figure out today? What do we figure out tomorrow? And that'll come up again in the next slide. You want to consider what this looks like from the top down and the bottom up. It's uh, from a perspective of your executives dictating what it is this is going to look like. That is a part of the puzzle. Your, your executives should express this is the direction that we are going to take. But it should also come from the bottom up where the feedback and the pain points and the opportunities for improvement are being brought to you from the front lines of your organization so that this can all be solved. Um, you know, and uh, one of the things that's, that's in, um, it's backseat driving if the, at least in my opinion, um, if the executives say, this is, the, this is what our pain points are and this is, uh, this is how we're going to solve them without hearing those pain points from the, uh, from the actual people who conduct the work every day. It might, be, might not be as big a deal as, as they think it is. And we have from, from Victor, um, have you seen any improvement in the data governance practices already in place before digital transformation in small and medium businesses? Uh, many SMBs are traditionally oblivious to the need to develop such capabilities until it impacts their ERP project. project. Um, it's it's pretty uh, pretty uncommon that uh, that data governance practices are are being are being followed uh, <laughs> in small and medium sized businesses. Um, some organizations that are a bit more mature in that space that have somebody in their their IT department. Um, is uh, is very aware of the challenges in this, and they sit down and they make it happen. Um, so the data governance is is always something that um, that can come up if you have the right person in the right seat. Um, but for the most part, um, you know the sales team is doing what they need to do, and they're creating customers. And uh, the the shipping team is doing what they need to do, and they're shipping product. And there are sometimes. Uh, gaps there and how that data comes together, especially if you're using different systems. Uh, for that. So that's a, that's a very uh, astute observation there, Victor, on the, um, the sense that folks don't realize how data needs to be managed um, within a modern ERP system. Um, and from perspective of the next step on this slide, defining your priorities uh, collaboratively Data should be a priority. What do you want to see and how do you want to measure your business from a perspective of success and failures? Um, you know, do, how do we want to use our data and how are we going to protect our data? Um, it does not take long for data to be, uh, to become uh, distant uh, or disjointed and, and inconsistent. And pulling all of these together, you're really going to start focusing on your strategic alignment for this digital transformation with the goal being, um, as the image in the background shows here, getting all of these squiggly lines pointed in the same direction. Um, the goal always so that everybody knows what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it uh, so that we, we can create a sense of alignment so that when we start saying we're going to head in this direction, and we all know what that means. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation here with Adam. We'll, we'll keep rolling this clip uh, that he gave at a recent conference about how to begin your digital transformation if you're a mid-market organization. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling and we're in the middle of a presentation from Adam Cheatham, who's a Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting. And he's here talking with us about how to start your digital transformation if you're a mid-market or smaller organization. So let's go back to the clip right here. Step seven is to create an actual digital roadmap. And this is where the process of uh, starting your digital transformation uh, really uh, is it's where the digital transformation itself really truly begins. You want to phase this out. We talked about this um, being an important part where digital transformations don't happen overnight. Um, this, uh, I like to do it in, 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 in phases. The image here has waves, but the overall goal here is to think of it in terms of immediately in the near future and in the more distant future on what your digital roadmap is. You can do this in the form of a, uh, of a strategic articulation diagram. This one right here is a spider plot diagram. There are a number of ways of doing it, but you want to think about this being phased out and know what you're doing first, know what you're doing second, and what, know what you're doing later. Um, a great example of this is you have two things that come from an ERP transformation, really three. You have the things that are replacing your existing functionality. Nobody wants to buy a new ERP system and lose functionality and be unable to do things that they can do today. So that should be your first priority. Wave one, phase one should always be replacing existing functionality um, and making sure that that is, that is taken into account. Also included in wave one is very often the, the concept of the low hanging fruit, right? Plugging in the software and being live is going to automate a lot of currently manual processes. And there are going to be some gains in that. And there are going to be some bells and whistles that, uh, that the software will bring to you. Uh, but wave one should always be existing functionality and, and low hanging fruit. For those of you who are, um, who again, with the MRP perspective, MRP is, and demand planning are often things that we suggest in, in wave two. Um, as if forecasting is another great one for wave two. And the reason for that is to implement it in, in phase, wave one or phase one is these are modules and functionalities that require data. They require historical data to be able to make an analysis inside the system and then make recommendations based on historical data. 
if you have no historical data in the system, having that module implemented, it's not useful yet. Um, it takes about six months to get enough purchasing data uh, for, a, uh, for an organization that isn't seasonal um, to have enough information to start uh, running an MRP and having a demand planning that's accurate. Um, same with forecasting, those types of things. And for organizations that are seasonal, it takes a year. You have to go through all the seasons. So you know, why implement that? Why pay for that now? Why implement that now? Why inject that level of complexity into your implementation um, that could cause risks of your goal life to, for something that you're not going to use for six months isn't, and isn't going to cost you any money to wait? You want to consider the timing of each of these options. Um, geographically, for those of you who uh, may have multiple uh, locations, you may think about having to, uh, things done one location at a time or all at once. Um, but thinking of your systems architecture, what's being replaced, what's being integrated, and how the, um, the, your variables and assumptions might be uh, challenged based on what it is you want today and what it is you want tomorrow. Um, and then the time frame options and, uh, and their link to cost. Um, and you want to, to have a, a, a six month implementation that may cost, uh, cost less money um, than, a, than a nine month implementation. Um, that's a part of the puzzle. But that nine month implementation may provide more benefits, just slightly more. And you want to think about what your opportunity costs are there. Always think about the risk of your business model and the level of process adoption that's required and the change management impact. Um, change management is something that, um, for those of you who have been following Third Stage for a while, we are, um, we are firm believers that it's the people that make an organization go around. People are the ones who facilitate and administer the processes, um, and they are the ones that interact with your system. If you spend a lot of money on a new ERP system and your people will go back to using Excel, um, you just spent a lot of money and spent a lot of time on something that isn't adding value. I did add a bonus one in this. Um, seek help from a partner, whether that's somebody that you know and you're, uh, that's gone through something similar or uh, through a network that, you, that you're a part of or through folks like Third Stage. Uh, defining a roadmap is just the beginning of your digital transformation. It is a long journey. And digital transformation are hard work. They require teamwork and collaboration. And in all of this space, you have a business to run. Um, so uh, the, the thought that I would leave you with in, in all of these thoughts in this big, massive idea that is the digital transformation, um, you are not alone. And there are people who face this challenge every day. There are lots of resources out there for you to take advantage of and learn from. So I'd encourage you to do that. And seeking help is not a uh, is something that um, is not a is not a bad thing to do. So I know I kind of blew through that. So I'd love to open up the floor for conversation um, and, and see what you guys think. Our pain point: How to face a remote implementation, acting as a consultant, working between the system integrator and the customer, considering to postpone the process, but is not sure um, what's our experience on extra issues happening on remote implementations, um, and do you follow a different roadmap? Um, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, 
but it's kind of pull things apart. Um, a, re a remote implementation and just as importantly, a remote go live is something that the world has been forced into today. Um, it does have different challenges. I wouldn't say that they're extra issues, they're just different issues. Um, along the way where uh, we'll say for uh, for example, seeing things in person, um, whether it's the mapping of your warehouse, um, the, the actual uh, structure of how your production lines are, are all arranged um, and the space that's required for that uh, is something that you can only see, you can only get a feel for in person. However, um, you know, the advantage of, of doing some of these things remotely is that you can do these things in a way where uh, people are going to interact with the system through a computer screen and remote interactions force that to be done through a computer screen. So instead of seeing it and walking through it in a workshop in person, uh, people have the, um, are essentially forced to see it on their computer um, the way that they will see it when the system is live. Uh, so there are, there are pros and cons. I would say that uh, your decision as to whether or not to postpone the project um, should be based on an assessment of how ready is the organization, how well do you know the risks of going live, and, and how well do you uh, have the, uh, your contingencies planned. Um, when we're talking about implementation and going live, I'm a firm believer in um, risk management um, and risk mitigation. Um, one of the, my favorite items is a risk log. Um, and the whole goal is to see things before they happen. And of course, this is it's entirely impossible to see everything before it happens. But when you sit down and start thinking about what are all the problems that we could have? What are the biggest problems that keep us up at night? Um, what if, uh, if I listed the top five things that um, if they happen to uh, on go live, I will consider this implementation a complete and utter failure. List them out, and then and, and then develop a plan for how it is you're going to make sure they don't happen beforehand, and then uh, develop another plan for what you're going to do if all of your efforts to prevent them to happen fail, and they do indeed happen after go live. How are you going to fix that? Are you going to roll things back? Um, are you going to Grin and bear it and try to just get through it. You know, there's, there are different types of problems. Um, printing double labels is something that we've seen recently that took a long time to get uh, to get a handle on. Is that a major problem? It's really annoying and it's a waste of paper, uh, but it doesn't cause any real uh, customer impacts. But um, I've had other organizations that bring me horror, horror stories that they were unable to ship products for a month. Um, that's, that's a disaster. Um, especially for um, uh, an organization that is going live at a time where they may be in their busiest point in the season. Um, are there any unique challenges uh, slash concerns you've encountered related to rolling out an ERP for retail business with physical stores and inventories? Um, yeah, and those are, those are sometimes a little bit different uh, from a perspective of the point of sale. Um, you know, when you start thinking about rolling out software um, and, and being able to, to accommodate all of the things that are going to happen, uh, re retail businesses face um, some, some interesting challenges when it comes to having to, know, having to have one computer that can accommodate all of the products in one space. Every product that I scan needs to be, it, it needs to exist in there, the price needs to be right, and, I need, and if it's not, I need to know how to adjust it. 
of just as much retail businesses have that issue with training. Um, you know, folks that are going to be using this new system as a point of sale uh, need to know how to. And if they can't do it on day one, um, then because they haven't been trained or it's not intuitive enough or both, that's a challenge. Um, also, from an inventory fulfillment perspective, making sure that each retail location has the products that, it, that it's expected to. And then just as much being able to say, I have that item in inventory at another store across town. Um, I can either get it to you um, in the next couple of days or I can, uh, or you can go and get it yourself. I can reserve it for you. That's a customer experience that's expected and uh, making sure that you can accommodate those types of things that the customer expects um, are, are certainly important to uh, rolling out an ERP system for retail businesses. Okay, thanks for that, Adam. That's a, that's a great presentation and uh, we've got a lot to unpack with that. So we're going to take a quick break and when Kyle and I get back, we're going to talk a bit more about some of the themes and threads that we picked up on during that, that presentation from Adam. So we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Kyler, and we just saw this clip of your husband slash our Director of Strategy and Transformation, uh, Adam Cheatham, who was talking about how to get started on a digital transformation journey, especially if you're a small or mid-sized organization. So what were some of your thoughts or questions or, or themes that came out of your observation of watching that clip? Yeah, definitely. I tried to put, you know, my small business hat on when, you know, watching these these types of things. And I know we talk a lot about defining a future state. And when it comes to small businesses, that might be hard to do, I would assume, because you're in maybe a very high growth type of area um, or industry, which is why you're looking for additional support in technology. So I wondered if you, you might kind of help us understand, how do you define uh, a future state when it might not be incredibly clear as to where you're going as a business? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, a company that's moving a million miles an hour or a million kilometers an hour, depending on what part of the world you're you're in, um, you know, you, you it's easy to lose sight of where you're headed or not have a clear vision of, you know, how big am I going to be in three or five or 10 years or what markets am I going to be in or how many locations will I have? You, you, you may not have those answers in that level of specificity. But you generally are probably going to know that in order to continue the growth trajectory we're on or that we have planned, we know that there's bottlenecks, you know, throughout the organization and things that are holding us back in general. So it could be efficiency bottlenecks. It could be uh, customer experience or customer relationship bottlenecks. It could be quality issues within the organization, things that you know you can't or don't want to replicate as the company continues to grow. 
So I think it's, you know, you, you could take some of the pressure off by saying, you know, you don't, we don't need to know exactly what a growth target is going to be in order to successfully navigate a transformation. But what we do need to know is that in order to achieve any growth trajectory that we're on or any goals we might set, we know that there's certain things holding us back. And we know that there's certain things we need to do to help us scale and enable that growth in general. And usually that answer is going to lead you to the same answer as if you asked, you know, within the context of specific goals or metrics, you're usually going to get to the same answer as, as to what you should be doing as an organization. So that's probably a way to simplify it is just really look at what's, what's undermining and what could be fueling your growth. Definitely. And, and I think that leads nicely into kind of um, assessing those gaps that Adam was talking about. So understanding where there are areas of opportunity in your technology. So once you kind of have those gaps uh, or things that you want to do, it seems like you could go directly to a software vendor and say like, these are all the things I want to do. And then this is what I want to do as a business. Um, But based on kind of the feedback we saw in the presentation, that might not always be the perfect roadmap. And having some industry partner that's unbiased can really benefit that. Is that kind of something that you've seen before as you kind of just jump into the software conversation and then vendors a lot of times can um, derail that just in trying to, you know, sell their software? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And having that agnostic and independent view of what might best enable what you're trying to accomplish is important because if you go... Define whatever goals you have. I don't care what they are. You know, list out your top 10 goals as an organization and what you think you need going forward in the future, you know, to scale for growth. If you were to go reach out to any, you know, three or five or however many software vendors out there, especially if they're big ERP providers, you know, enterprise-wide technologies, you give them your list of 10 things, they're probably all going to say, yes, I can do all 10 of those things with our solution. And then it becomes overwhelming and you think, okay, well, what's the difference? And am I just slicing hairs by overanalyzing and, you know, you either get confused or overwhelmed or you're getting misleading information or in some cases all of the above. So there's just a lot of noise in the process and a lot of bias. So having that uh, objective view to say, yeah, maybe they can all accomplish those 10 things that are most important to you, but this vendor or these two vendors over here, or these two solutions over there are going to handle it better than, you know, others. And so you need that sort of clarity and objectivity in, in defining what that roadmap is going to be. Right, definitely. Um, And that makes a lot of sense. So when it comes to small businesses, we were talking about those relationships can be a bit stronger. So that that creating an alignment step, executive alignment, it sometimes seems like, especially in in less um, in maybe family owned businesses or businesses with less of an executive team or less maturity in having those conversations. how do you how do you secure alignment or what's the best way to kind of have that conversation and build that trust through those relationships on the executive level? Well, I think the first thing is to have a, a clear vision and be aligned on that vision of where you're headed as an organization. And, and then certainly when you start unpacking how you're going to get there and what the objectives and priorities are going to be in the specific strategies and tactics you're going to take uh, as it relates to your transformation, you want to make sure you're, you're aligned on that side. So I'd say those are probably the, the biggest things or the biggest thing you can do in that situation. Have you ever experienced a lot of resistance on kind of that small business level of, you know, maybe, maybe, um, you know, a family business, some family members see 
additional opportunities and others see, you know, um, other opportunities and taking them through a process to get aligned? Is that something that you've ever experienced? And if so, can you talk a little bit about how you transcended that? Yeah, it, to answer the first part of your question, yes, that, that is a dynamic we see, we see often. And a, a big reason for that is, like I mentioned before, um, you know, smaller businesses, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, I should say, um, smaller businesses have their own unique challenges and change management issues. And usually those are rooted in the fact that we were once a really small shop, maybe we're still smaller, smaller, you know, certainly not a large multinational or, or Fortune 500 yet, but we're bigger than we were, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago. And you start to get people that will resist the change because they liked it better when we were smaller and when I knew everyone and I could talk to everyone one-on-one. And now, you know, we've got hundreds of people and I don't have those same relationships and I'm just one of hundreds of people versus one of the first, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 employees or whatever it might have been. So that that creates resistance to change in, in some ways. Um, and certainly as you grow and add new team new team members, new personalities, new opinions, it gets harder to stay aligned. It's a lot easier to stay aligned when you're less than 100 employees than when you've got thousands of employees. So that dynamic becomes more challenging. And so you just have to, first of all, start with the vision and the overall strategy of the organization and then align it with what, how can this transformation support that longer-term vision and use that as a, as a um, objective way to define what that roadmap is going to look like. It's not personal. It's not personal preference. It's more focused on the business, the strategy, the objectives of the organization, and figuring out how the transformation is going to best enable that. Now, the key to that and the, the predecessor, the prerequisite to that is ensuring that your team is aligned on what the general direction and strategy of the business is. Because a lot of times people don't want to grow as fast as you are. They don't want to change as much as they are. They don't want you to start to act like a big company. They don't want you to mature in certain areas, not because they mean badly or because it's for some uh, negative reason or some nefarious reason, but because they just might've personally liked it better the way it was, or they just don't want to change. So you really have to make sure that you've got that alignment on the overall overarching vision before you can get any sort of alignment on the transformation itself. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Easier said than done. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when when it, when we're talking about um, that alignment and and that piece of of kind of understanding and identifying any resistance to that change, I would say if I'm a small business owner, I'm thinking about going through any sort of technology transformation. I'm thinking like dollar signs in my head, you know, budget, budget. Like how how do you get in front of that? And so, what are some exercises you do to help small businesses know like is this investment worth the risk of spending that, you know, big chunk of money that's maybe a lot more significant to me than a, a Fortune 200 business? How do you take them through kind of that analysis? Honestly, the same way you would a larger organization with the exception or the the caveat that, to your point earlier, what we were discussing, that it, it is a bit more personal when it's a smaller organization. You have more to gain or to lose as a result of any sort of transformation or change. So, you know, viewing it from a perspective of how do we define and measure ROI, what's the business case, what's the business value, and not just implementing technology for technology's sake, but implementing technology or some sort of transform transformative improvement because it's going to help your business, you know, increase its revenue, reduce its cost, provide higher customer satisfaction, help you retain 
talent better than you might be right now, whatever the goals, whatever the metrics might be. There's some measurable ROI there that you can use to compare the benefits to the cost to see if it's to see if it's worth it. So it's really not that complicated and it's not that different from a from what a larger organization might do. The only difference being that, you know, the margin of error might be quite a bit lower uh, for a small to mid-sized organization. And then when it does come to budgeting, I assume you should include things like change management as a piece of the actual budget, which I know I've seen just on um, our Stratosphere conferences and live stream. That's been a big question from specifically our small to medium-sized businesses, um, including that uh, type of, of safety net in the budget. Yeah, absolutely. You want to look at the total cost of ownership. I mean, everything from um, change management, like you said, any uh, data migration, integration, third-party bolt-ons, even just as simple as the software you know you're buying, make sure you understand the long-term cost because a lot of times companies, you know, do their business case or their ROI assessment based on the first year or two of those subscriptions or licenses. But especially if you're a cloud-based or a SaaS cloud-based user of, of technology, those costs are going to escalate over time. And so you want to make sure you've got a good picture of what that escalation is going to look like. Um, so yeah, you want to, you want to look at all that and make sure you're getting again, an objective, realistic view of your costs, not just what you might want to hear. And that's, that's the tricky part when you're dealing with vendors is they tend to downplay the cost and overstate the benefits of their, of their technology. Yeah, definitely. That's really good information and, and so important to know. Um, and I know we have some blogs on the hidden cost of software vendors, so be sure to check those out to make sure that you're really checking all those boxes and asking the right questions. When it comes to vendors specifically, you know, Adam gave us some great steps to kind of start to think about a transformation. When it comes to um, software vendors, what are maybe the top three or some examples of some systems that smaller businesses should be researching? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, certainly if you're on the very small side of things, uh, you might look at like a QuickBooks or a Zero, you know, sort of a basic uh, introductory beginner uh, accounting and finance type of software. Uh, for most of our clients in the mid-market, which are a bit, you know, they're too large for QuickBooks, but they're not quite big enough for an SAP or an Oracle or maybe even a Microsoft D365. There's a few different options. You have... Uh, you know, NetSuite is very common in the mid-market, uh, especially the smaller end of the, the mid-market. Um, Microsoft Dynamics has really two two versions of Dynamics. They've got Dynamics F&O or Finance and Operations, which is more for larger, more complex organizations. And then they have Business Central, which is more, you know, more for the mid-market. It's a, you know, cloud-based solution that has been around for a while. So that can be a nice um, transition, especially if you're using like a Great Plains, if you're using Microsoft Great Plains to get you to where you are and you're looking for something to take you to the next level, uh, Microsoft Business Central could be a, a good option there. And of course, it ties into all the, the Microsoft products as well. So those are a couple options. You also have like Sage, which is a full-blown ERP system that does financials, inventory management, warehouse management, et cetera, supply chain management, all that good stuff. Um, so kind of a broader ERP system, especially if you're in manufacturing or distribution, um, that's a pretty pretty common one. Um, yeah. And then there's a ton of other, you know, niche industry focused solutions as well. But the good news with the mid market is you've got a ton of options. Even if you know you're going to rule out SAP and Oracle because you just don't want to deal with the complexity or the cost or the heartache, there's just a ton of tier two, tier three options out there. that are really viable, good products. 
Yeah. And, um, and recently I learned a lot from, um, our chief client officer, um, Brian Potts and, and Christy Barber, who is again, our small business specialist. They did a, um, a small business software, uh, overview of all the different systems at digital stratosphere. So definitely check that out on our YouTube channel. If you are looking for more of those, and I know you have some top 10 lists for small businesses as well, and some industry verticals, um, on your YouTube channel as well. So I, I kind of want to end with, if you had one piece of advice for small to mid-sized businesses that are going or contemplating a digital transformation, what would it be? It's a good question. Uh, it's always hard to narrow it down to one thing. You know, I, maybe it's just because we've been talking about this throughout the episode, but I, I can't help but come back to this whole um, alignment issue. You know, make sure you've got a clear vision of where you're headed and what it is you want to accomplish as an organization. And then make sure that whatever you do, whatever your roadmap is, whether it's a digital transformation, business transformation, or some hybrid of both, make sure that that transformation initiative is is aligned very well with that that longer term vision and strategy as, as an organization. So many times you see mid-sized organizations that go off track because they go chase the shiny new objects that don't necessarily fit or have anything to do with where they're headed as an organization. Um, and, you know, within that sort of a secondary, call it 1A and 1B, I'm still giving you one answer. I'm just giving you 1A and 1B. Um, 1B would be, you know, make sure you, you look at that roadmap and look at your options objectively, be realistic about the pros and cons of each alternative, and then objectively choose the path that makes the most sense for you. And by the way, once you choose that path, make sure that you're identifying and mitigating the risks that go along with that. So I just gave you like seven answers in one. But yeah, that's my one thing that... We'll just go with D, all of the above. How about? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably a better, better answer than I had. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing that clip. And um, I know Adam, um, his contact information uh, is in that as well. If you have questions for him, um, all third stage goes directly to our stakeholders that specialize in that, in that type of business. But overall, great stuff specifically for our small to mid-sized business um, listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, even if you're not a, a mid-sized organization, if you're a larger organization, there's still lots of good nuggets within that conversation. So hopefully you're able to pick some of those things out. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you being here today and appreciate Adam and Jed providing some good input and uh, being guests on the show here today. And most importantly, appreciate the audience. Appreciate all of you listening here. And uh, as always, if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to see us cover, uh, be sure to drop it in the chat here, drop us a line, uh, engage with us on social media, whatever the case may be. And as always, uh, new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and all the audio podcast platforms. And uh, be sure to follow us on social media as well. So uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks for being here. Have a great rest of your week. And we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control.